Steel Toes and Scoreboards Podcast. Word association, Dirty Curdy, first thing that comes to mind. He changed the league, am I wrong? God, I hate Tom Brady. He's talented, but yeah. You just won't call him the goat, will you? We should have called ourselves the Hashtag Tits Podcast. A thousand downloads a day, guaranteed. Dude, it is talking sports. I love it, bro. <laughs> Is he the best running back you've ever seen? If he's not, then who is? Who do you put at number one, bro? There will be a Detroit Pistons Bad Boys episode one day. And you love that two-year run, don't you? No, I do. You can get a hot bat anywhere. You build around your pitching, or at least I do if I'm in charge. Pitching and defense wins your World Series, hands down. I came out of the closet <laughs> as a Lakers fan. Whoa, bro. Scared me there for a second. Ah, uh, sure bet. Sure bet. <laughs> There will be an increase of boxing talk on this show. I love boxing. I'm down for that anytime. Our few non-sports episodes have been pretty well received. We do a good thing by running a two-fold podcast. Please put Pete Rose in the damn Hall of Fame. Charlie Hustle, the all-time hits leader. It's political bullshit. And if he ever sees the Hall of Fame, he'll be after he's no longer with us. I miss the NBA I grew up on in the 90s and the early 2000s. The game isn't the same, but these kids can play. We're starting to talk more hockey, and that's, you know, it's, that's never a bad thing. Puck the world, puck it all. Puck the world, <laughs> Kurt says. I promise you, I can work a pro wrestling reference into every episode. Want to see me do it? Weird flex, but okay. I can't believe, uh, seriously, in all seriousness, I can't believe we've been doing this show a year now. I can't believe people still listen after a year, you know. You have the perfect face for radio. Oh, cut me deep, son. Cut me deep. He exploded a bird with a fastball. I seen it happen. Randy Johnson, the big unit. That's such a fun, the big unit. So, uh, you know, I, I got a little soccer news no, for you. No, let me stop you right there. That's a no for me. We don't talk soccer on this show. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Let me ask you, though. Does Kobe win three in a row without Shaq on the Lakers? What do you think? Boy, that's, that's uh, it's pretty tough. All right, well, look at it this way. He's a future Hall of Fame quarterback. Without question. And he's still so young. Lots of knowledge left in that kid. All right, guys, enjoy the next episode of Steel Toes and Scoreboards coming to you now. Alright guys, welcome to another episode of Steel Toes and Scoreboards. Jared Atkins and the homie, Kurt Kelly. What's up, brother? What's up, man? We got a full belly. belly. Yes. Shout out Pizza Junction. Yes. Uh, Thanks for the pizza, bro. Hey, man, it was my pleasure. We don't, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. and uh, Since you're making all the big bucks, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well earned, too. Right, right. Um, We got a treat tonight. Yeah. So uh, tonight is uh, part three of our uh, 
three-part series kind of on government overreach and, and tragedies and stuff. Uh, tonight we're doing the Oklahoma City bombing, 1995. Uh, check our Podbean archives for uh, <clears throat> Ruby Ridge, 1992, which we recorded back in February. And then uh, in June or July, we did – oh, look. We did uh, Waco, 1993. And uh, those events directly tied into the OKC bombing on April 19th, 1995 in Oklahoma City, which was the two-year anniversary of Waco. So it all kind of ties together. So tonight's going to be, you know, I like like good stories. I'm a big history buff, and uh, I like, unfortunately, tragedy stories. And this is uh, one of the worst tragedies our nation's ever seen, but it's one of my favorite stories to tell. And uh, the few listeners we have, a couple people were excited for this one. So, Kurt and I are gonna are gonna get into it. I don't know what we're gonna talk about two weeks from now, but I know what we're gonna talk about tonight. Yeah. So, uh, let's get let's get started. Uh, I want to first start by saying, to the best of our knowledge, and I, and I really want to put this out here on this episode. To the best of our knowledge, all information that we provide you in tonight's episode is factual. Obviously, if it's an opinionated thing, I'll, I will preface it by saying it. Uh, if we present any misinformation, please let me know, and I apologize for the error. Uh, and any content featured tonight uh, belongs to our show, except for video and audio, should they be used, that we do for education purposes only in those events copyrights would belong to the proper parties so luck or hips bothering you man yeah okay so uh before we get into it uh guys check out glary guitars on facebook or check them out at glarymusic.com glary is spelled g-l-a-r-r-y uh just had a little uh they shared a post of mine on social media uh, a couple weeks ago because i posted about my guitar took it out of the case kurt and uh the kids had stepped on the case once or twice and it had been sitting in the case for like five months still in tune still in tune not a lick missing so uh not bad when you consider this was an 80 dollar acoustic so uh give them a call at 1-606-404-6286 uh, again, uh, Christmas time's coming up. If you've got a young and that's interested in music, they, I don't want to say cheap. They have very affordable acoustics. They have electrics. They have basses. They have uh, fiddles or violins for you sophisticated types. They have all sorts of accessories. They have amps. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, so please, guys, with the holidays coming up, check out Glary Guitars. Check them out at glarymusic.com. We can't put them at the fiddle. That's right. If you're going fiddle. to play in Texas, got to have a fiddle in a band. Lead guitar is hot. Okay, we got to stop. For you. Sophisticated. All right. <clears throat> in the old days, I would say I'm going to fire up a lucky strike and we're going to get to it. But now I'm going to take a drink of cold uh, Casey's, Casey's General Store water. H2O, right. And uh, hit the, hit the uh, vape. And uh, we're going to get into it. So, uh, okay. Okay. (laughs) I mean, we're going to try to fill in some comedy tonight. I mean, this podcast is mainly a comedy podcast anyways. Uh, 
Hashtag tits. Yeah, right. Two idiots talking sports. Right. Uh, but we got a serious side. We here. we got a yeah, and but to to I mean, and I don't want people to think that we're making fun of a tragedy. We're not. But generally, I don't know about a lot of you, but when I'm faced with adversity, I generally try to make uh, jokes and laughter out of the situation. Yeah. Oh yeah, because that's how I fucking cope with things. Right. So uh, okay. So these, as I said tonight, we're gonna you know link back several times. So please, if you've never listened to. Uh, the other two episodes, this is going to be an awesome, I shouldn't say awesome, but it is going to be an awesome, I feel like, I'm really proud of the research. This is going to be an awesome companion piece to Ruby Ridge and Waco, so again, please, go to our archives wherever you get your podcast. Ruby Ridge was recorded in February, Waco was recorded June, July-ish. Uh, listen to those first before you come to this one, so, okay. Uh, oh, and I want to shout out my homie Tyson who uh, I do the hockey podcast with, who graciously, once again, wanted me to thank you for letting him sit in your chair, as he calls it. But, uh, okay, Uh, Tyson, you said you were anxious for this one, so here we go. So uh, the Oklahoma City bombing was unfortunately a terrorist event, and it was domestic terrorism. Uh, It was a truck bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, uh, April 19th, 1995, which was the two-year anniversary of Waco. It was, uh, I don't know, what, what would you call it? It was performed, it was carried out uh, by two anti-government yeah. uh, nut jobs, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. The bombing went down at 9.02 a.m. and killed 168 people, injured more than 680, I mean, how it didn't kill 680 people. Yeah, which uh, when, when you guys find out about the logistics, or, or I shouldn't say the mechanics of this bomb when I get to that later tonight and tell you guys uh, how there wasn't a 1,000 people yeah, dead. exactly. Uh, I'll never understand that. Um, it destroyed uh, at least a third of the building, which the building eventually had to be demolished. Uh, 324 buildings within a 16-block radius was destroyed. 258 buildings nearby had shattered glass. 86 cars in the vicinity were destroyed. And it was estimated that $652 million worth of damage was done. When you say destroyed, we mean destroyed. Like fucking gone. Yeah. That's what I mean. Foobard. Foobard. Fucked up beyond all recognition. Yes. So local, state, federal, and worldwide agencies engaged in extensive rescue efforts in the wake of the bombing. FEMA activated 11 of its urban search and rescue task forces. It totaled 665 rescue workers who assisted in rescue and recovery operations. And this remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in the country's history. Uh, Now, within 90 minutes of this, this is just all kind of a, a preface here. Within an hour and a half of this explosion, for those of you that might not know this, Timothy McVeigh was stopped by Oklahoma Highway Patrol for driving without a license yeah. plate. Excuse me, a license plate on the back of his getaway car. He was then arrested for an illegal weapons possession because he had a concealed handgun and his permit wasn't valid in the state of Oklahoma. I didn't know it. So Terry Nichols was arrested, and within days, both men were charged. Uh, Nichols was arrested without incident at his home in Kansas. And two other accomplices, a husband and wife team named Michael and Laurier Fortier, were later identified as accomplices. 
Uh, McVeigh, for those of you that don't know, was a Gulf War veteran and a, I don't really want to say a right-wing extremist, but he was uh, he was a very pro-militia guy. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, he detonated a Ryder rental truck, a box truck full of explosives. He parked by this building. Terry Nichols had assisted with prepping the bomb, uh, motivated by his dislike for the same government that trained him to be a fucking killer yeah. in the Gulf War and unhappy about his government's handling of Ruby Ridge in 92 yeah. and Waco in 93. Yeah. Timothy McVeigh, uh, Decided he was going to get some a comeuppance for yeah. whoever he thought needed a comeuppance here. And it happened on the two-year anniversary, like I said. Now, uh, uh, before we get into this here and start to get into it, and there's a, there's a lot to get into, one last thing here I want to preface this by saying. This investigation has went down in history being known as OK Bomb. That's just right. what they call it. I call it the OKC bombing. Right. Technically... And the United States federal government, it's called OK Bomb. They conducted almost 30,000 interviews. There was almost uh, 4 million tons of evidence and over a billion, that's with a B, a billion pieces worth of information. When the FBI raided McVeigh's home, it found a telephone number that led to a farm where McVeigh had purchased supplies. Uh And of course, the bombers would be tried and both convicted in 97. Uh, for those of you that's completely unaware of the situation, uh, Timothy McVeigh is no longer with us. He was executed in July of 2001 in Terre Haute. Yeah. The first federal prisoner to be, not state, you heard me right, the first federal, not state, United States prisoner to be executed in almost like half a century. Right. So, okay. Big deal. Big deal. Big so deal. so yeah. let's... Uh, so I've kind of set the tone for you guys now. I'm going to adjust my EQ. So I've kind of set the tone for you guys. Let's get into this. Yeah. So Timothy James McVeigh was born April 23rd, 1968, just about a month after my dad, huh. in the small town of Lockport, New York. Now, he grew up in Pendleton, and I don't know where Lockport and Pendleton or if it's in the same vicinity. But for reference, his place of birth is Lockport. It's a city just a little bit bigger than our very own Jasper, Indiana. Okay. So, right. small town boy. Right. Okay. Uh, it's long since been proven that he was uh, bullied throughout his life a little bit. He was uh, kind of thin. He got taller as he got in his years, but he was kind of <laughs> small at first. And it was determined that as a young child and teenager, he would delve into fantasies in his mind that featured him violently retaliating against people who wronged him. Ooh. Don't that just make you already start to raise yeah, a red flag right yeah, there? Yeah. He's got an eye for an eye, huh? Now, here's the other thing. So you got to understand, he was born in 68. Right. Vietnam. So by 88, he's in his 20s. So in the 80s, he's... A teenager. Right. Computers were really starting to come of age in the 80s. Yeah, I'm an analog man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an a- call back to uh, a show open. <laughs> While in high school, though, uh, Timothy McVeigh became interested in computers. And at one point, he hacked into a government computer. Uh, you know, so... 
he's pretty good with computers. Yeah. So he was. So here, here's another thing. He's hacking into government government computers. Right. That can't be easy. And that <clears throat> also, you know, showing he. So he's already committing violent fantasies against people who fucking wronged him. And here he's hey. hacking into government computers. So he's already <laughs> showing a disregard. So. Blatant disrespect. Yeah. What I'm driving at here in a minute, you'll see. But uh, what is funny, though, was uh, he went to Starpoint Central High School, and he was voted the most promising computer programmer of his class. Yeah. And in a joke by the people that made fun of him, he was nominated and was voted the most talkative by his classmates, even though he wasn't. He was a very yeah, shy kid. Yeah. I just so he graduated in 1986, same year as my parents. He was 54, <laughs> wouldn't he? He would be if he was alive today. He would be 54, yep. 55. Yeah. So now McVeigh comes from a family of of uh, gun owners, right? Uh, Pro two A people, like most of us that listen to the show are, um, like I am. He got introduced to guns by his grandfather. One of his things, uh, it would later be determined that one of his uh, goals in life was to own his own gun shop and, you know, buy and sell and trade firearms. I wonder what. (laughs) I I just, you know, we're fixing to have a late night here at Kurt's, and it's, it's been almost a year since we've had a real late night episode, but we're not... It's basically nine o'clock, and we're just starting. And uh, we don't get these very often, but on the nights we do, Kurt's just got a different look on his face. And and like tonight, he's like already in tune with this. Like this was like how we did Hoffa. Yeah. Even though we did Hoffa just a couple months ago. By the way, another great episode climbing our uh, all-time listens charts. Uh, check out Hoffa. But uh, anyways, it's just you're really getting it. So. Seeds are being planted here. So, while being coming from a family of gun owners and growing up, he, McVeigh, become a pro 2A guy. Uh, he read magazines. Do you remember seeing these magazines at the newsstands and back at gun trade shows called Soldier of Fortune? Uh, yes. Yeah, so he was a subscriber. He would get his hands on every edition of Soldier of Fortune magazine that he could. Mm. Always had one with him. Mm. Had him in the car with him. Mm. Had him in the shitter with him. So he was obsessed with that. Okay. So, All right. Now, I do want to point out that he also uh, attended college briefly uh, after high school, but he dropped out and went to work as an armored security car guard. Huh. You know, a money wow. truck. Right. I'm seeing a lot of things yeah. here that could... I'm seeing, you know... <clears throat> yeah, the pieces are... Yeah. His co-workers would note after years later that, you know, we should have saw this coming because he was very obsessed with his duty revolver. So, uh, oh, no. Uh, well, and, and um, this was this come out during uh, the investigation into OKC when uh, a couple former co-workers of his, while he was working for the uh, money trucks, said that he came to work one day looking like Pancho Villa. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? He had bandoliers. Oh, shit. You remember the, bandol- yeah, the yeah, gun belts, yeah, the, yeah, the X yeah. across the back? 
He was fucking wearing bandoliers. Oh so he was going to guard that truck. So, uh, so, so, so uh, here's here's my fucking point. So I'll probably jump on the gun by telling you this, but he's going to be fixing to enlist in the military. All right. Okay. I don't know what kind of shit was going on in this country in 1988. I was born in 1987. Was there not mental health exams to to? I, I'm sure I, I'm sure there had to be at least one quick battery of tests that they went through. Maybe not as extensive as what they do now with all the veteran suicides these days. They're really trying to cut. But, like, is there not something where these motherfuckers are like, that checks a box, that checks a box. Okay, we need to get somebody in here and, like, get this guy to see, like. You would think, but. Okay. At the time, you got to think there's Gulf War starting, possibly. So, so, so May of 1988, at 20 years old, McVeigh's going to go ahead and enlist the United States Army. He attends basic training. And uh, advanced individual training at uh, infantry school in Fort Benning, Georgia. Now, while he was there in the military, Timothy McVeigh would use a lot of his spare time to learn more about gun. And I want you guys to, to listen to me when I say this. He's already a kid at 20 years old who knows a fuckload about firearms, ammunition, and a lot of fucking, you know, and yeah. he's wanting to study and learn combat. more. Combat stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he's wanting to learn more. And he already, I guarantee you at this point, he's so enamored with this, he already knows more than the average Joe. Right. right. Okay. Now, Wolverine. He, he also learned about sniper tactics. Uh-huh. And he started to study, while he was in training, he started to study as much as he could about explosive devices. Okay. Now here's something, because this, this, this does eventually tie in. So McVeigh, you thinking he, from at this point, he already knew what he was going to do. Well, no, no, because, because at this point, 88 Ruby Ridge and Waco hasn't happened. Okay. But that's not to say he's off his rocker. And it's not it's long since been argued by multiple people that he was part he believed in the white supremacist movement and everything, although there's no record of him having affiliation with anybody, which we'll get into. But at this point, at 20 years old, 1988, fresh into the military and the army, do I think he was planning to do something? No, but I think the seeds were being planted there that somebody should have. So here's where he starts getting shit on really bad. Okay, yeah. So, 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 but here's something though that that makes you think kind of just in counterpart to what I just said. So McVeigh would get reprimanded by the army because he was purchasing a lot of white power t-shirts and memorabilia and literature at Ku Klux Klan rallies. He was going to. Wow. And he was doing this in response to his fellow army servicemen who were black who were wearing black power t-shirts around the bases and passing out black power literature. So then it was determined, is he doing this just to be a smart ass in response? Or, you know, when you're in the foxhole, your buddies are your buddies. Right. But maybe he was like, fuck these colored guys. Who knows? Well, something interesting happens about this point. This is where he's going to meet Terry Lynn Nichols. And we'll get to Terry's background here in just a couple minutes. Terry was his platoon guide. 
And them two uh, shared a formed a really good relationship with each other. They had similar backgrounds. Their views were all the same on uh, gun collecting and survivalism, you know, the doomsday right, preppers people. Right, right. They were into that. And then they would later get stationed together at Fort Riley in Junction City, Kansas, which plays a huge part in OKC bombing later on. And they met and become friends with their future third accomplice, Michael Fortier. Now, what's interesting about McVeigh here is that uh, he was pretty fucking good with a firearm in his hands. Okay. He was a top-scoring gunner uh, with a cannon with the uh, Bradley fighting vehicles used by the Army's um, 1st Infantry Division, I do believe. He got promoted to sergeant. After being promoted, he earned himself a nice little reputation for assigning what can literally be called as bitch work. Right. And we all know what the term bitch work means. He was assigning bitch work to colored service members and using racial slurs. Uh-oh. So there that kind of right. counterpoints what I was saying about him being a white supremacist, having no known affiliation, but then actions like this are happening. And like I said, he was stationed at Fort Riley in Kansas. And then uh, one day the phone rings and it's uh, it's the president. Well, not really. I'm using it as a metaphor. But the uh, phone rings like, hey, boy, you're going to Desert Storm. Right. So I, I want to point something out here. Um, before his execution, McVeigh gave one television interview with 60 Minutes. Yeah. Uh, you can find... Uh, a lot of that on YouTube and your Google machine. McVeigh didn't do a lot of TV interviews. He did one that I know of. But uh, he said that he hit an Iraqi tank more than 500 yards away on his first day in the war. He said he decapitated an Iraqi soldier with cannon fire from 1,100 yards away. And then he said that he was later shocked to see the carnage on the road while leaving Kuwait after the U.S. troops had just obliterated the Iraqi army. But McVeigh, for all intents and purposes, and I hate to say this, McVeigh was a good fucking soldier. Right, sounds like it. He received the Bronze Star Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, Southwest Asia Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. And since... He was a perfect combat veteran and a born leader. He wrote... But that's where a it hero. But now, as you're going to see as we get later on in this episode, McVeigh... What, what flips? What, what? Well, what he's doing is what does it. What you'll find out later on in this episode, and uh, as we get into this, all the shit that he's doing, coinciding... He, this shit's going on before Ruby Ridge. Obviously, Kuwait, Desert Storm... You know, I was four years old. I have like one memory of hearing about Desert Storm when I was little. That's it. What he's doing to all these uh, foreigners, these Middle Easterners, he starts to have guilt. This is a government and a military that has trained him to be a stone cold killer. Fuck right. everybody else. If you're in war, it's you and right. it's fuck everybody else. Right. He starts to wrestle with that. He starts to see his country as an enemy. The country that trained me to be a killer is wanting me to kill innocent people. And then, you know, you fast forward to 92, 93, Ruby Ridge, Waco, and all this right. shit. Then it's full-blown his mind that the government that trained him is yeah. the enemy. 
So it's like I said, it's a story. So, and we'll get into that. When McVeigh returned from Desert Storm, he wanted to join the Special Forces. As if this guy wasn't, you know. Right. Okay. Um, but after uh, only a couple days, he withdrew out of the three-week program. Uh, basically, he was not physically fit to be Special Forces. He was a good soldier. He was a fucking great soldier. But he wasn't... Uh, Physically or mentally fit enough by army standards, whatever. So he wrote a letter to his superior saying that he wanted to leave the army. And in 1991, okay. Timothy McVeigh was honorably discharged. discharged from the United States Army and thanked for his service. He was a veteran. Now, I'm going to put the pause button on Timothy McVeigh for a minute because... I need to talk about Terry Nichols because he's a huge part of this story and Terry Nichols is going to be discussed. So Terry Lynn Nichols was born April 1st, 1955 in a small central eastern Michigan town known as Lapeer. It's about the size of where I live in Fardin, Indiana. It's a town of about 8,000 people. Small town. From all my research, he was a good child, third of four kids. He was raised on a farm. He took the tending farm very well, and he was known to have a bleeding heart. He would often care for injured animals, especially poor, injured baby birds. Huh. So this guy was a nurturer. Okay. Okay. Uh, Baby's a killer. <laughs> he's a nurturer. <laughs> nurturer and a killer. So he, he was effective in classes and crafts and business law in high school, and he was a huge science nerd. He was also shy. While in high school, he played uh, football. He was a wrestler. Now, his brother, James Nichols. James Nichols, who, by the way, James Nichols self-published a 400-page book about this bombing. Uh, And I forgot to put the title in there, so you can go look. He stated that his brother was good at artwork, book smart. Uh, James Nichols was uh, held by the United States government, Terry's brother. James was held for about a month by the federal government before they realized he had absolutely nothing to fucking do with this and had no knowledge of it, so they cut him loose. But for a month, because of his brother's association with McVeigh and his involvement, you know, his brother was laying there swinging in the wind. But anyways, uh, Terry Nichols wanted to go to school to become a doctor, and he graduated from high school in Michigan in 1973. He wanted to be a doctor, but he graduated with a 3.6 grade point average. That's not doctor material. I mean, it's not, it's I mean, it's close to a 4.0. Yeah. Now he did go to school at Central Michigan. Uh, he completed 13 credit hours with a B grade average. He got average grades in bio- biology, chemistry, and trigonometry. This is all important shit if you're going to be a bomb blower upper. Yeah, right. right. Right? A bomb blower upper. Yeah. And he got average grades. I just find I just find that fucking hilarious. Like <laughs> well, he's going to blow himself up. Like right? how bad are you at your fucking job that you're, you know, in the future you're going to grow to be a terrorist and you could blow yourself up. <laughs> but you could blow yourself up because you failed fuck you barely passed fucking chemistry. Uh, like irony. you're a bad bomb blower up or you're bad at your job There's like an irony there for sure okay but listen to this 
1974, one like I said, he was the third of four children, right? In 1974, his brother Leslie was badly burned in a fuel tank explosion on the farm. Hmm. Just, just randomly, you know. Now, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I put that in there to show the bleeding heart side of Terry Lynn Nichols because he offered to give him skin for his skin grafts. His brother, bleeding heart. Now, he did try farming with his brother, his older brother, James, who we talked about, but they didn't get along. He felt his brother was a dick. <laughs> so, basically, he, in 1976, Terry Nichols would move to Colorado and obtain a license to sell real estate. After he closed his big sale, his mother told him she needed help on the farm. He returned to Michigan. And there, in 1980, he met a real estate agent named Lana Walsh who was a divorced mother of two, who was five years older than him. They married and had a son named Joshua, born in 1982. So now Terry Nichols is a father. During the marriage, uh, Nichols uh, had a lot of part-time and short-term jobs, uh, carpentry work, grain elevator work, life insurance, real estate. Holy shit, running gauntlet. According to his wife, she was the one that really had the career, and he was a uh, housewife. He was a stay-at-home house husband. Uh, he did most of the cooking, the cleaning, and the gardening. Way to go, Terry. Now, Terry never liked the farm life, though, as an adult. And in 1988, at the age of 33, because he's older than Timothy McVeigh, right. he said, fuck you all, I'm going to the Army. <laughs> and he was sent to Fort Benning. What? Yeah, he basically told his brother, fuck you all, I'm going to the Army. 33 years old. He he's going in the Army. Okay. And he fucking passes all of his shit because they let him in. And he's going through basic training at Fort Benning. That's kind of crazy. Now, what's funny about this is that he was the oldest dude in his platoon. And it was documented that he was called Grandpa by a lot of the other guys. (laughs) Damn it. I always fuck that up. They called him Grandpa. Papaw. Papaw. Papaw Terry. Come here, Papaw Terry. So, but of course, in his platoon was Timothy McVeigh, you know, and like I said, they had the shared interests, shared political views. They were stationed together in Fort Riley. They met Michael Fortier. Uh, Nichols' wife would file for divorce after he joined the army. Uh, now, they had a conflict over childcare. He requested and was given a hardship discharge in May 1989 to return home to take care of his son who was seven at the time. So he wasn't in the army, but for a cup of coffee, you know, basically Macho Man Randy Savage, cup of coffee in the big time. Look at me. Wrestling reference. Every episode. Uh, Oh, yeah. The Macho Man. Dig it. Um, So, okay. (laughs) So as he left the army, he told a fellow soldier that he would be starting his own military organization soon and would have an unlimited supply of weapons. Okay, I can see you looking at me at the corner of your eyes. I'm looking at the laptop. Just hold on to your panties, Gertrude. Here we go. So in 1990, he was 35 years old. He married a 17-year-old girl named Marif Torres from the Philippines, who he met through a mail-order bride agency. Go ahead, say something. I know you want to. No, I'm out. No, go, no, ahead. No, I'm go ahead. Out. I'm go out. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Hattie old girl. Hattie old girl. Come on, puss. No, you got nothing? No. Got nothing? Okay. Let me, let me rephrase this. I told you to hold on to your panties, Gertrude. In 1990, he's 35. He meets and marries a 17-year-old Filipino woman through a mail-order bride agency. When she arrives in Michigan several months later, she was pregnant with another man's child. The child died at age two when he was suffocated in a plastic bag while Terry Nichols babysat for him. Huh. Wow. The woman initially suspected foul play, but there were no bruises or signs of trauma to the child. The death was ruled accidental. Okay. Nichols and the woman had two more children together during their marriage. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Can't take care of one. You have two more. <laughs> and he's, he's already got one from a previous yeah. relationship. Holy shit. That's what I'm saying. Like, these people are going unnoticed because the world's not going to realize who they are yet. But, like, hello, big red fucking fire truck. Yeah. Big red he fucking impregnates truck. a 17. 17- well, I mean, I guess she's an adult later on. But, okay. So. I guess during the course of their marriage, Terry Nichols and, and Torres would frequently go back and forth between the United States and the Philippines. She was attending a local college, working on a degree in physical therapy. You know, sometimes he went with her. Sometimes he traveled to the Philippines alone and she stayed home in Kansas. Whatever. There's something I'm going to tell you here that's uh, important. Terry Nichols left a very cryptic message in a package of documents with his ex-wife, Lana Walsh, after she had already remarried, prior to him going to one of his villas to the Philippines alone without his current wife. Upon returning from the visit to the Philippines to learn that she had prematurely opened a letter instructing her what to do in the event of his death, he made a series of phone calls to a boarding house uh, you know, and then I guess sort of to um, it had something to do with McVeigh. Basically, this woman just decided his new wife, the Filipino, she's like, uh, "I'm taking the kids and leaving. You're fucking nuts." <laughs> so she's out of the picture. Okay, I know that was kind of an anticlimactic ending. Sorry, folks. Get what you pay for. So now, what I want to do, it's just, it's already craziness already, isn't it? It sounds like it, yeah. I mean, and these two are going to hook up. And become like the world's worst fucking tag team ever. Terrorists. Worst tag team terrorists. I'm telling you right now, if this was pro wrestling, they'd be booed out of every arena. Oh, yeah. These are going to be the worst tag team ever. Hulk Hogan would fuck these guys up. Yes. Okay, so... 29-inch guns. <laughs> what you gonna do, brother? The 24-inch pythons, brother. <laughs> I just blew out somebody's eardrums. You hear how loud that was? That was my eardrums. That, that was, <laughs> what you gonna do? Why do we have listeners? I don't know. It's the comedy, man. We're fucking idiots, bro. Yeah, well. So here we go. Man, I just ate a hair off the mic. That was one of my children's hairs, too. I'm telling you, the girls get up here and they play with these mics. They're not even on. My four-year-old's up here going, Do you want to go to the park today? That's what she was doing the other day. Because when uh, I'm working on, I'll leave yeah. the laptop case open and they get in there and, and, and the big carry-on bag that's got all the equipment in it. It's fucking comical. Uh, all right, where are we? Timothy McVeigh. Oklahoma City. Okay. 
Before we get to the meat and taters of this episode, we got a lot to go through. Okay. I would like to now, if it's okay with you, but I'm going to overrule you because we need it for the notes. I'd like to present and talk about a little bit of what happened with McVeigh and Nichols kind of after they were out of the Army. Okay. Which we kind of just, we lightly, uh, you know. Grease the wheel. Grease the wheel. Yeah. We painted the corner of the plate with the pitches there, but now we need to come down and start throwing strikes. Right. So, uh, McVeigh would write letters to local newspapers after he got out of the military, just complaining about things. Okay. It started with taxes. Yeah. Taxes. Taxes. Yeah. Taxes. All right. Okay. Uh, for those of you I didn't uh, put in here what papers these were, uh, Google machine, everything. Uh, there is a plethora of... <laughs> McVeigh liked to write. He was a writing son of a bitch. Maybe he was an analog man, too, even though he was computer smart. Yeah, right. He could have been. He, he, he wrote letters and editorials. To, he wrote fucking essays. And it's essay. all out there. What's up, essay? Essay. Jose. 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 In 1992, he would write a letter to a local paper, quote, Taxes are a joke. Regardless of what a political candidate promises, they will increase. More taxes are always the answer to government mismanagement. They mess up. We suffer. Taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels with no slowdown in sight. Is a civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come down to that, but it might. Ooh. Huh. Huh. Red flag. Big red fire truck. Now, he would also write a letter to his congressman, uh, John LaFucking, however you say his name. LaFelsi? We'll just call him LaFelsi. Okay. He's a Democrat. Okay. We don't talk politics here. He's a Democrat. I'll just say that. Right. Wonder which way I vote. Hmm. But he wrote a letter to his congressman complaining about the arrest of a woman who had been carrying mace in her purse. Uh. Quote, it is a lie if we tell ourselves that the police can protect us everywhere at all times. Firearm restrictions are bad enough, but now a woman can't even carry mace in her purse. Huh. huh. So he's uh, pushing back against the uh, anti-gun. He, he's kind of pushing back against the government and yeah. everything. Yeah. Now, you want to hear something really interesting? McVeigh would move in with uh, Terry Nichols, who would move in with his brother James Nichols on their farm around Decker, Michigan. Huh. Now, while visiting friends, McVeigh reportedly complained that the Army had implanted a microchip into his buttocks. <laughs> Forrest yeah. Gump. Yeah. Shot me right in the buttocks. Something jumped up and bit me. Right in the buttocks. <clears throat> Was it a bullet? <laughs> <laughs> right in the buttocks. <laughs> Million dollar wound. Right in the buttocks. I've seen a penny to all that money, though. <laughs> so, while visit <laughs> Son of a bitch, Kirk. So he complained the army had micro had implanted a microchip into his ass so the government could keep track of him. McVeigh worked long hours in a dead end job so that he didn't he like. He felt he did not have a home. He sought romance, but his advances were rejected by a coworker. He felt nervous around women. He believed that he brought too much pain to his loved ones. Timothy McVeigh grew angry. Frustrated at his difficulties in finding a girlfriend, he became a gambler. 
He had a legit gambling fucking problem, a huge one. Uh, he was unable to pay his gambling debts. He took Are you cash advance. I don't know. He would. <laughs> Did he, I just say that? He would, he would take cash advances, and then he'd default on his repayment uh-huh. plans. So he began looking for a state with low taxes so he could live without the heavy government regulation. So this is where it really starts to get good here. He became fucking furious when the government told him that he had been overpaid $1,000 while in the army and he had to pay back the money. Guarantee he didn't have that money to pay back. No, he didn't. So he wrote a letter. Timothy McVeigh, a decorated soldier, honorably discharged in 1991. Timothy McVeigh wrote a seething letter to the United States federal government. Quote, go ahead. Take everything I own. Take my dignity. Feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. Ah. Ha. Uncle Sam kissed my ass. Listen to this. It gets better. How can it get better? Oh, this is... I shouldn't say comedy, but this is some pure comedy gold, kind of. This is some pure gold. So, Timothy McVeigh introduced his sister, Jennifer, to anti-government literature. But McVeigh's father, Bill, had no interest in these views. He did not want that stuff in his house. Bill worked for uh, GM. Okay. So, he had a good factory job. McVeigh's dad. He was a good 9-to-5-er, 8-to-5-er. So he moved out of his father's house and into an apartment that had no telephone. This made it impossible for his employer to contact him for overtime assignments and more hours because he's always bitching about money. He quit the NRA, believing it was too weak on gun rights. Listen to this. I'm going to drop my vape. Everybody listen. Pin drop. (laughs) Timothy McVeigh, the NRA. He left the fucking NRA because it was too weak on gun rights. <laughs> now, Kurt, what's the one thing we don't talk on this show? Politics. Okay. But I'm a GOP guy. Yeah, I've, I've let it be known. I'm a very big pro 2A guy. Yeah. Okay. The NRA is considered scum-sucking fucking weasels to a lot of people on this earth. That's what a lot of people think about the NRA. And yet this guy... Leaves the NRA because he thinks they're too soft. <laughs> so the point I'm driving home here, and I've been doing this to paint the picture. This guy's fucking nuts. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he's not all there. Okay. In 1993, shout out after two beers podcast because we they talked about this. We talked about this with them on their show. And, I mean, you talked about this during the Waco episode. He drove down to Waco during the siege to show his support. At the scene, he distributed pro-gun right literatures, bumper stickers, hats, a variety of slogans and things, such as, uh, when guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw, this, that, and the other. Uh, Hop in your Google machine, go check it out. you got to think this will be a red flag. This is a huge red flag, and he's ex-military. Yeah, and he's, at at, and he's at Waco giving out T-shirts. Yeah, and hats and, and bumper stickers. And, and as I told you in our Waco episode, available in our archives, I can't plug that enough, and available to you on all your Google machines and your YouTube devices. 
McVeigh told a student reporter at Waco, the government is afraid of guns people have because they have to control, excuse me, let me, the government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to the people. You give them an inch, they take a mile. I believe we are slowly turning into a socialist government. The government is continually growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. That's 1993. And that is 1993. Wake up. We are sitting here. 30 years later? So, 29? 29 years? 29 years later. Yeah. And we're still on that same path. I think. I've been watching a lot of Law and Order. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So, (laughs) okay. This this next part I'm going to tell you is is a little bit heavy, kind of heavy maybe. I don't know. I love good cold water. Heavy. Heavy. For five months following the Waco siege, Timothy McVeigh worked at a lot of gun shows, and he was handing out cards printed with, and I can never pronounce the guy's name, so forgive me. I'll I'll tell you who he is after I mispronounce his name, and we're just going to call him by his first name. But McVeigh was handing out cards printed with Lon Horucci's name and address. Who's Ron Horucci? Uh, well, before I tell you who Horucci is, let me tell you why he was given the address. Uh, Horucci's name and address was on these cards that McVeigh handed out because McVeigh would later admit it was in the hope that somebody in the Patriot movement would assassinate this guy. Horucci is an FBI sniper. And uh, he is most notably known for the shooting of killing of Vicki Weaver while she had babe uh, while she held baby Alicia, which I have told you that story. Yeah. I've been blue in the face, and I've talked about it at length in our Ruby Ridge episode when the hostage response team was called in after the death of Billy Dagan the very next morning at Ruby Ridge. Uh, the front door was opened. Vicki Weaver stepped out on the porch holding her infant child, baby Alicia. And Haruchi put around through her fucking eye. Point blank, put around through her eye. Murder. Murder. Now again, you know this is a this is a uh, OKC episode, not a Ruby Ridge episode. But I want, but I want to point this out, and uh, I dare you to come at me on this because I will back you down. You can fact check this all you want. They did not. Why they weren't given a chance to surrender? Because I know people are like, that's bullshit. Okay. They tried to get this Weaver family to come down off this mountain for months, months. When Billy Dagan was killed in response to Sam Weaver being, and again, we'll never know who fired the shot first. Kevin Harris and, you know, Sam Weaver and all that. We all know Sam Weaver died, 14-year-old boy. The dog died. That was Weaver's dog. And U.S. Marshal Billy Dagan died. Once Billy Dagan was murdered on that mountain and they drug his lifeless corpse down the mountain, it was then said, you don't have to give these people an order to surrender. That's already been done. You see any adult person on site, fire the shot. 
But and Haruchi put one through her fucking eye as she held an infant that was less than yeah. ten months old. He had an itchy trigger finger. Oh that yeah. To me. Well, and these guys are fucking talented too, bro. Like they're oh, hitting. Yeah. These guys are hitting yeah. dimes at like 300, 400 fucking meters. Right. So, anyways, uh, so, uh, where was I? So McVeigh would write hate mail to Haruchi, suggesting to him that what goes around comes around. And as we'll get to in a minute, uh, Haruchi was later a target. And unfortunately, McVeigh decided to just take out a building instead. Now, I want you guys to understand, McVeigh was uh, he was a staple on these gun shows. He went to over 40 states visiting uh, 100 or more gun shows. And he found that the further west he went, there was more anti-government people out there. You know, the last, the final frontier. Yeah, the last frontier. The the last frontier, yeah. So, and it was while out there that McVeigh really got enamored with uh, some uh, hardcore uh, anti-government literature called the Turner Diaries. And the Turner Diaries uh, was basically, uh, I can't remember the author's name. It might be in the notes later, but. The Turner Diaries was basically this white supremacist movement. And in one of the books, they build a bomb and they blow up an FBI building and they kill like 800 people. Okay. And this was supposed to be a storybook, fiction, comic book thing. Okay. McVeigh would bring these books to every gun show he would go to. He would read people excerpts out of this book. When McVeigh was pulled over on I-35 or whatever it fuck it was... An hour and a half after he detonated the bomb in the front seat of his 78 gold Mercury marquee lay copies of the Turner Diaries. So anyways, uh, an author said, quote, in a gun show culture, Timothy McVeigh found a home, though he remained skeptical of some of the most extreme ideas being banded around he liked talking to people there about the united nations the federal government and possible threats to american liberty now this is this is one of this is one of my favorite parts right here mcveigh had a road atlas with him with hand-drawn destinations of most likely places for nuclear attacks he considered buying property in arizona which he determined to be a nuclear free zone He lived for a brief period of time with his friend, Michael Fortier, from the military, and his wife, uh, and the two became so close that he would become a best man at Fortier's wedding. He expended, uh, McVeigh experimented with cannabis and methamphetamine. There it is, right there. The devil's lettuce. That's what, hey, stop smoking your reefer. That's what did this. Right there. Yeah. He's fucking potheads, man. Fucking potheads. Yeah. I don't like potheads. How about you? Killers. 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 Yeah. Anyways, basically, I told you this, tell you this, because Fortier would have a falling out with McVeigh, and eventually Fortier would turn state's evidence against McVeigh. McVeigh thought he had a drug problem, and he couldn't be trusted. So they, they had a falling out, kind of, which I kind of yeah. jumped the gun there. That's all right. Uh, April of 93, McVeigh headed for the farm in Michigan where Terry Nichols lived. Uh, with this a bag of weed. <laughs> <laughs> with a bag of reefer. 
Uh, it was while watching live coverage of Waco that Nichols and his brother began teaching McVeigh how to make explosives by combining household chemicals and plastic jugs. The destruction of the Waco compound enraged McVeigh and convinced him that it was time to act. He was particularly angered by the government's use of the terror gas, which we talked about at length in our episode, with women and children. He had been exposed to gas as part of his military training and was familiar with its effects. The disappearance of certain evidence, such as the bullet-riddled steel-reinforced front door to the complex, led him to suspect cover-ups by the federal government. Here's something else. McVeigh's anti-government rhetoric would slowly become more and more radical. He began to sell ATF. Uh, he began to sell Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearm, and Explosives hats riddled with bullet holes, <laughs> and a flare gun that he said Hello? could, and a flare gun that he said could shoot down an ATF helicopter. Hey, I'll tell you something. I can take down an ATF <laughs> helicopter with this goddamn flare gun right here. You want to see me hit it? Here's some hats with holes in them. Yeah. Bullet so, holes. so. And it gets better. McVeigh would produce home video. And you got to think, back in 1992, 1993, 1994. No net. Home video technology was not the greatest. These big-ass, heavy, 15-pound, 10-pound cameras with the VHS tapes. But he would produce videos detailing the government's actions at Waco and handing out pamphlets with titles such as the U.S. government initiates open warfare against American people. Or how about this title? Waco shootout evokes memories of Warsaw, Poland, 1943. That's some Hitler shit. Yeah. Okay. He began changing his answering machine greeting every couple of weeks to various quotes, uh, such as Patrick's Hen- Patrick Henry's, give me liberty or give me death. He began experimenting with making pipe bombs and other small explosive devices. When the government would impose new firearms restrictions in 1994, McVeigh had fucking had enough. As he believed it threatened his livelihood. Huh. Damn. You, know, you need a little more? Well, yeah. You need some more? Yeah. I mean, I ain't convinced yet he's a killer. You're not convinced yet? Nope. You convinced he's psycho yet? No. no okay, you need some more? So... McVeigh had one real childhood best friend. That was it. Uh, You know, a lot of kids have a lot of friends. But it was found out that McVeigh had only one true childhood best friend, a guy by the name of Steve Hodge. And towards the end of 93, somewhere around 93, 94, wherever, I could, in fact, check the date on it, somewhere in this time period. So we're looking at late 93, then middle of 94, McVeigh would begin to disassociate from Steve Hodge, who he always kept in contact with. But he wrote Hodge a 23-page farewell letter. This is what I'm telling you guys. Timothy McVeigh loved to write. He loved to put right. his push his word and push his narrative. He wrote a letter, and uh, I got a little bit of that. Do you, yeah, do you yeah. want, Okay. This is his childhood best friend. Okay. The one person on earth who might be there for him at all the time. McVeigh declared, quote, those who betray or subvert the Constitution of the United States are guilty of sedition and or treason, are domestic enemies, and should be punished accordingly. 
It stands the reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is likewise guilty. I have personally sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. And I will because not only did I swear to it, but I believe in what it stands for in every bit of my heart, my soul, and being. I know in my heart that I am right in my struggle, Steve. I have come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil. Free men versus socialist wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. End quote. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. I need a that, drink. That, Fill time. I'm doing a lot of talk. Drive over and arrest him right now, golly. Oh, so that convinced you there? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And they couldn't see this coming. So here's one last piece. Here's one last piece of McVeigh. And then I got a little bit of shit for you about Terry Nichols. So McVeigh felt the need to personally do reconnaissance. What do you do as a, what do you do as a soldier? You recon. Recon, yeah. So he reconnoitred sites of rumored conspiracies and possible attack places. He went to Area 51 in order to defy government restrictions on photography. He went to the Gulfport, Mississippi to determine the veracity of rumors about United Nations operations, takeover shit. I don't know. These were false. Uh, the Russian vehicles on site were being configured for use in UN-sponsored humanitarian aid efforts, blah, blah, blah. So it was around this time that McVeigh and Nichols began making bulk purchases of things, which we'll get to. Now, as far as Terry Nichols go, and before you know what? We need to... Uh, oh, that's the wrong thing. Okay. Oh, what, I just can imagine when we get to the ingredients in this bomb... It's oh, that's like another thing. It's like, really? People didn't see this? <laughs> Guys, <laughs> check out Black Rifle Coffee Company. It's a uh, veteran owned. We love our veterans. I don't know so much about McVeigh, but we love our veterans. Uh, check them out on Facebook and check out blackriflecoffee.com. Or <laughs> there's uh, tons of good products there, and they've got energy drinks. I can't even focus. Kurt's just got me. He's over here snickering. It's not very often I can't hold it together, but it's coming out at the seams here. Uh, I mean, fuck. Check out, check out Black Rifle Coffee Company, yeah. guys. Seriously, and it is November, so Veterans Month. Uh, we appreciate all veterans. Maybe not so much McVeigh, but we appreciate all veterans. <laughs> I told you this episode. Okay, I fucked up when I said that the point guard episode would be our magnum opus. I fucked up. This three-part series, Ruby Ridge, Waco, and this is going to be our magnum opus. There, there's a lot of shit to get to. <coughs> I can't believe it. Ain't. That somebody's not seen somebody's something not, first. Yeah. Even even sending weird letters like that. And here we're going ready to go purchase things, right? Yeah. And the letters and the purchases. Well, let, and uh, screams bomb. If you think that, bomb. if you think McVeigh was crazy. Let me let me introduce you to Terry Nichols post military service. Okay. 
So his anti-government views developed and growed over the years. Uh, Nichols would spend, you know, a lot of his life in these areas of Michigan. Uh, neighbors said that Nichols started to grow distant and withdrawn. Uh, he uh, he attended more anti-government groups and meetings. He started to experiment with explosives, and he got more radical as time went on. He started to adhere to a sovereign citizen ideology and you know and you know you've heard all about sovereign citizens and sovereign nations and you know what that means i don't have to explain that to you so here's where it gets good in february 1992 the summer of ruby ridge happened you know so february 92 he attempts to renounce his u.s citizenship by writing a letter to the local county clerk in michigan stating that the political system was fucked and he declared himself a non-resident alien. <laughs> Several months later, he appeared in court and he tried to avoid responsibility for some of his credit card bills. I want you to keep in mind, you know, he's late, mid to late 30s, early 40s. He's already got like $40,000 in debt, credit card debt. Okay. He would, uh, he shouted at the judge that the government has no jurisdiction over me, fucko. <laughs> yeah. In October, Marco. in October nineteenth, nineteen ninety two, he signed another document renouncing his American citizenship. By May of nineteen ninety three, Nichols appeared before a county judge regarding an eight thousand four hundred dollar unpaid credit card debt. He also decided, "Fuck you, I ain't paying it." He renounced <laughs> his driver's license too. So they don't have no track of it. Yeah. So, so you know, like I said, McVeigh and them, you know, they they became closer even after they got out of the military. Uh, they were watching, you know, Waco together. Now Nichols, for what I can find out, Nichols didn't go with him to Waco. Okay, as far as my research goes, and if I'm wrong, please somebody tell me. I would love to hear that side of it. As far as my research goes, McVeigh went to Waco without Nichols. <coughs> Okay, but they were both watching, you know, parts of it on TV, and uh, you know, I'm sure they stayed in touch. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, so uh, collaborating. They did, they did do a lot of the 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 gun shows together, and of course, Nichols moved around all the time. You know, he moved to Vegas briefly to try to work construction. He failed at that. He sucked. He went to Kansas and was hired as a ranch hand. He sucked and failed at that. By March of 1994, he's living in Kansas. He sent a letter to the clerk of Marion County, Kansas, saying that, quote, I am not subject to the laws of the United States government. Do not withhold my federal taxes from me. And his employer said he was uh, a hard worker, but unusual in his political views. And then he quit his job after they took federal taxes out on him. <laughs> right. So... Uh, he when he quit though in the fall of 1994. Now fall, that would be September, October, November ish, right? Right. 1994. When he quit his job, he told his boss he was going into business with Timothy McVeigh. Huh. Okay. Okay. So now I think we can all agree that both these motherfuckers were. So what, gonna, what's the expression? Off the rockers. They're going to open up a mall and Paul gun shop. Or I, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> who could have predicted what was coming? Like, all right, now so, so how do we get to April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five? 
How do we get there? We know kind of what was going on. Let's, how do we get there? Let's get there. Yeah. So the roots of this bombing start off way back then with them meeting in the army. And then them two meeting Michael Fortier. Okay. And they're both upset, you know, the Ruby Ridge and the Waco thing. Like, and again, check out our our archives for that. Why does my phone keep? And the federal taxes. Federal taxes. And, uh, yeah, trying to take her ground. You know, and like I said, um, McVeigh was boots on the ground at Waco as it was happening. Selling the anti-government, pro-2A, white supremacist, bumper stickers, says, hats. Hey, who's that guy over there? Yeah. That little stand over there. Right, yeah. I mean, you think... Huh. Yeah. Nah. But in at this point in Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols' mind, the American government were the bad guys. They were the bullies. They're the ones that needed the reality check from the tap your tap your chest. The real American patriots. It had become apparent to these men that this was also an attack on their two A rights, their God given, God damn it, constitutionally protected Second Amendment rights to keep and bear fucking arms. Right? Right. That's exactly how they yeah. felt the way I said it. Uh and it was after the disastrous end to the Waco siege in April of ninety three that they decided that something needed to be done. But what, when and where? Well, Kurt, what would you say if I told you that I learned something that I didn't know about Oklahoma City over my course of research the last couple of weeks. What would you tell say if I told you that these attacks almost didn't happen because there was an entirely different route planned? Okay. The assassination of a couple of federal judges. Yeah. Attorney General Janet Reno. Oh yeah. And Lauren Harucci. Huh. Huh. So. How does uh, Janet Reno fit in this? She was the attorney general at the time. She gave the call for the the buildings to be knocked in in Waco right. and, right. you know, the whole fire set. So I don't know if McVeigh just wised up and realized that this was going to be a suicide mission because, you know, he might get Reno and get a shot off, but then somebody's going to get him. Like, right. he ain't getting away from this scot-free. Right. Remember the movie Shooter? No. Mark Wahlberg? Okay. Oh, great fucking movie. I've seen. He's casing all these places, and he's like, "It can't come from D.C. unless you're, unless your shooter's sure of uh, seventy-two virgins in heaven. He ain't, he ain't doing this." And in anyways, great movie. Go check out Shooter, everybody. Yeah. Then, of course, the uh, the Lorne Harucci shooting. Uh, you know, and here's something funny about Harucci. And again, I know I'm butchering this guy's name. I can never say it, so. Uh, the thing with Haruchi, it, it escalated s more when it was rumored, but continuously quelled by the American government that Haruchi was at Waco. McVeigh swears up and be damned Haruchi was at Waco as well. The government said he was not there. Well, here's a little background information for you. On September 13th, 1993, and I, I want to point this out. <clears throat> the assassination attempt on Janet Reno, that's a high target. But McVeigh's blinded rage, he put all of his focus on Harucci first. All right. Janet Reno was just going to be second. Anything else was a bonus. Like, he was stalking Harucci. And, like, he was convinced he was at Waco, like I just said. Right. Government said he was not. Well, 
September 13th, 1993, Charles Riley, he's a fellow FBI sniper. He claimed he heard Sarucci shooting from Sierra One. Sierra One was an FBI-held house at the front of the Mount Carmel Branch Davidian okay. compound at Waco, okay? Um, now, Riley would later retract his statement saying he had been misquoted and that he had only heard snipers at Sierra One announce shots that had been fired by Branch Davidians. Well, okay, maybe. Writer Larry clarified that he heard a radio report from Sarah One that someone had positioned, had witnessed gunfire from with the compound. Now, the Committee on Government Reform noted there is no evidence that the hostage response team snipers stationed at a house uh, were there on April 19th, 1993. Well, three of the 12 expanded 308 Winchester rounds the Texas Rangers reported finding in the house were at the position where Haruchi would have been at. The only one carrying those 308 rounds would have been the FBI's hostage response team. Now, government officials maintain that they were left behind from earlier use by the the failed raid on February 28th of 93, which we talked about at length in our Waco episode. Uh, And everybody else was like, "Uh, no, fuck that. Haruchi was there. Now, as I said, you know, McVeigh, to really drive us home, he followed Haruchi around and was passing her. So, red flags. Red flags. That's when McVeigh decided the best course of action was to bomb something. Now, he initially intended to destroy only a federal building, but he later decided that his message would be more powerful if many people were killed in a bombing. He said, uh, body counts. Now, his criteria for a building to bomb was that it needed to house at least two of the three federal law enforcement agencies, the FBI, DIA, uh, DEA, or the ATF. He said anything else was an added bonus. Now, they scouted targets in Missouri, Arizona, Texas, Arkansas. But now, in his biography, um, he had pointed out that they were looking at a place called Simmons Tower, which is a 40-story building in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know why he didn't pick that one? Uh-uh. There was a local flower shop on the first floor of the building, and he didn't want you know, people to, to be hurt. But the Murrah Federal Building had a fucking daycare in it. Now, here, here's the interesting thing. You guys get in your uh, Google machines... You go back and forth with this. There's never been a consistent answer on this. You know, some some people claim McVeigh didn't know. Some people claim he did know. Sometimes McVeigh has claimed he didn't know. Sometimes he said it wouldn't have mattered. So I I didn't really know what to put in my notes as to the variety of all this. Uh, I personally know, or personally, I personally believe he uh, knew. He knew. He didn't matter. He's a fucking soldier. A soldier does recon on any mission they do. Yeah. He, I bet you he was at this building five times oh, at, at least. least. At least. And Probably in the building. Oh, I guarantee he was in the building at least once. Had to have. I guarantee he knew there was a uh, daycare there. Yeah. So the reason why he chose the, the uh, Alpha P. Murrah Federal Building was um, he believed because 
it's law. It was the the. It was just solid glass in the front of that building. He expected it to shatter across the parking lot. The impact of the blast. Uh, he also believed that its adjacent large open parking lot uh, might absorb and dissipate some of the force to protect the occupants of nearby non-federal buildings. Yeah, so. Miscalculated there. So, and he he obviously planned this attack to coincide with with uh, you know Waco's anniversary. Uh, one point I want to make, and then Kurt and I are going to have to pause for the call. I'm going to get the bucket, <laughs> piss in a bucket. One small point I want to make. Uh, after Waco had burned to the ground in April of '93, uh, Timothy McVeigh was a huge photography buff. Uh, and as they went through the evidence of all the places he was staying in his car, they found rolls and rolls of films. That's how they put him as evidence of, of, uh, some of these places where they got material. Some of these places where they scouted McVeigh was a huge photography buff. There was pictures of Waco. What was left of Waco after it burned to the ground. So the point I'm making is that if he ever was having second thoughts when he decided amongst his travels, that he was going to make in his mind a holy pilgrimage to Mount Carmel. Any chance of stopping what he was doing was dead and buried right there when he seen that there was nothing left standing at Waco. Right, right. it was on. It was on. Yeah. And we'll be back. <clears throat> we're back. We were talking football. Uh, okay. So Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols started to purchase and or steal. The materials needed to manufacture the bomb that uh, did the damage. What and they, huh? What were these materials? Okay, so here we go. So we're going to get into all this. So another one of my daughter's hairs on the mic right in front of my face. So uh, this started as far back as August of 1994. Um, McVeigh, McVeigh, excuse me, obtained nine binary explosive sticks from a gun collector named Roger Moore and with Nichols 007 yeah <laughs> and with Nichols they ignited the devices outside of Nichols home in Kansas just to test them out on September 30th 1994 Terry Nichols bought 40 50 pound bags of ammonium Nitrate fertilizer. Yeah, triple 12. Yep, triple 12 from the Mid-Kansas Co-op in McPherson, Kansas. That's enough to uh, fertilize roughly 13 acres of farmland at a rate of probably 160, 175 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Or blow up two, three city blocks. Yeah, yeah. That's an amount normally used for corn. Nichols will go ahead and buy an additional 50-pound bag. On October 18th of 1994. Now, Timothy McVeigh approached. <laughs> I see it over my TV. I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll clean that off. I had something in my teeth and I just blew it and it landed on Kurt's TV. Everybody's like, gross. Is it probably a popcorn hole. Yeah. So I'll clean that off, bro. My bad. <laughs> I feel like such a dick. I, I watched it go fly. <laughs> I was like, where'd that fucking land? Because I see it come out of the side. <laughs> Evening spent with steel toes and scoreboards, folks. You'll laugh one way or another. 
So McVeigh would approach Michael Fortier and ask him to assist with the bombing project, but Fortier would refuse. Okay, this is, you know, Fortier is like... Yeah, so Fortier, as we had mentioned, he kind of turns... To, this is when he started to realize, uh, y'all, we're boys, and I hate the government too, but y'all might be a little too fucking cray-cray for me. So I'm going to just kind of back out. We're still homies. I'll still call you on Sunday, dog. But, uh, good luck with that bombing. Yeah, yeah uh, I, you know, you let me how the bombing goes. Good luck and everything. You know, fucking, you know, fuck the government. How, how you doing? How's your mama? Uh, McVeigh and Nichols would turn around... Uh, at the end of 94 and they would rob Moore's house the same guy that they had bought some okay. explosive sticks from right they would rob his home of $60,000 worth of guns gold silver jewels and a van to transport it all in wow in 2022 money they walked away with uh Almost $117,000 worth of stuff plus a vehicle. That's a lot of scratch. Now, McVeigh, the sly son of a bitch, would write Mr. Moore a letter later on where he would claim that the government agents had committed the robbery. Items stolen from Moore's house were later found at Terry Nichols' home in Kansas and in multiple storage sheds that the two had rented. Now... In October of 1994, I move my mic. In October of 1994, Timothy McVeigh showed Michael and Lori Fortier a diagram. Now, remember, you know he didn't want to be part of the bomb. He said, "We're right. still going to be homies." Right. He showed them a diagram he had drawn of the bomb he wanted to build. Here you go, folks. Let me explain a little bit of this to you. McVeigh planned to construct a bomb containing more than 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer mixed with 1,200 pounds of liquid nitromethane and 350 pounds of Tovex sausage explosives, named because they're in a tube and shaped like sausage casings, including the weight of 16, 16, 55-gallon U.S. drums in which the explosive mixture was to be packed, the bomb would have a combined weight of about 7,000 pounds. Now, Timothy McVeigh originally intended to use rocket fuel, but that was far too expensive. Pretty hard to get, too. And pretty hard to get. So McVeigh and his accomplices then attempted to purchase a 55-gallon drum of nitromethane used at various NHR drag races during the season. His first attempt came in Kansas, uh, didn't work. Worldwide Racing Fuels representative Steve Lesseur was one of three dealers who of nitromethane. What was he using the nitromethane for? <sighs> Tell me, Kurt. Soaking the fertilizer. Okay. So now... Uh, Steve Lesseur was one of three dealers of nitromethane. He was at his unit when he noticed a young man in army fatigues wanted to purchase nitromethane. Another fuel salesperson by the name of Glenn Tipton of VP Racing Fuels testified in court during McVeigh's trial about McVeigh's attempts to purchase both nitromethane and hydrazine rocket fuel. After the event, Tipton informed Wade Gray of Texas Allied Chemical 
a chemical agent for VP racing fuels, who informed Tipton of the explosiveness of nitromethane and hydrazine mixture. <laughs> McVeigh, using an assumed name, then called Tipton's office. Suspicious of his behavior, Mr. Tipton would refuse to sell Timothy McVeigh the fuel. Okay. Good call. Yeah. Good call. The next NHR racing event was held in Ennis, Texas, where McVeigh posed as a motorcycle racer and attempted to purchase nitromethane on the pretext that he and some fellow bikers needed it for racing. But there were no nitromethane-powered motorcycles at the meeting, <laughs> and he did not have an NHR, Sweet, NHR competitor's license. So LeSueur would again refuse to sell McVeigh the fuel because he was suspicious of his activities and his there attitudes. But the VP, or but excuse me, but VP Racing Fuels representative Tim Chambers said, I'll make a sale, and they sold three barrels of it to Timothy McVeigh. Oh, no. Chambers questioned the purchase of three barrels when typically only one to five gallons would be purchased by a top fuel Harley rider. But he thought, oh, what the fuck? Make a little extra money for the company. Give myself a good pat on the back, eh? Oh, boy. He sold them. Three barrels. There we go. There's the fuel for the... uh... The best part that he was posing as this motorcycle racer, that class of bikes weren't even racing that weekend. They weren't there. (laughs) But he's like, I'm still selling. Yeah, maybe he's just coming to scope it for next weekend. Okay, so... McVeigh would rent a storage building and stockpile seven crates of a foot and a half long. We're talking 18 inches, folks. Tovex sausages, 80 spools of shock tube, and 500 electric blasting caps, which he and Nichols had stolen from a quarry. This is the same bomb that we use in surface mining. Yeah, they stole it from a rock quarry in Marion, Kansas. Coal mining? Mm Mm-hmm. That's the same, same mixture. Close. Now, they decided they weren't going to steal any of the 40,000 pounds of ANFO. Kurt, what's ANFO? That's blasting powder. ANFO is ammonium nitrate fuel oil mixture, which makes shit go boom. Boom. Uh, And while doing this theft, they found 40,000 pounds of ANFO, but they decided not to steal it because that would be too suspicious. (laughs) Okay. I mean, they're already stealing this. I mean, it's right Right. there, but fuck it. You know, we're not going to steal it. Plus, uh, they already have what they need. They already have what they need. Plus, how the fuck are you going to make out with, you know, 40,000 pounds of, I mean, you know, how are you going to make out and not get caught with this shit on the back of a truck? Right. Uh, now here's, here's how much uh, planning went into this. McVeigh would make a prototype bomb that was detonated in the desert to avoid detection. Later on, and as you're going to come to find out as we get into this more and more, I have a lot of McVeigh quotes in here. These were all done with interviews done by him um, after Oklahoma City and some of the things he said at trial, which he didn't say a lot. and, and some of the things he pub- published in essays after trial and some of the things he published and posted to people before they knew who the fuck he was before he got famous. Right. Uh, I got a quote here. Uh, and it was speaking about the military mindset in which he went about the preparations for this. He said, quote, you learn how to handle killing in the military. I face the consequences, but you learn to accept it. 
in his mind, he compared his actions to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was in retaliation to the attack on Pearl Harbor. He doesn't compare his actions to the attack on Pearl Harbor. He compares it to the retaliation attack, which wiped out innocent people. Okay. You know, his reasoning was it was necessary to prevent more lives from being lost if I just take a few lives now. Excuse me. Okay. So here here we're leading up to D-Day. Yeah. On April 14th, 1995, so we're just five days before the bombing, right? Right. McVeigh paid for a hotel room at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas. This is where he makes a fuck up. Well, I, I take that back. We're going we're gonna to get to this, but I want to set the prefaces for this now. Either he wanted to get caught because he wanted people to know, and part of me thinks he did want to get yeah. caught, but part of me also thinks that you know how these people go when they plan things. How do serial killers eventually get caught? They get cocky. They get lax. Right, they right. fuck up. Right. He had two years of meticulous planning here. When he paid for the hotel room, on the slip, yeah. he signed Timothy McVeigh instead of his alias. Everything else, renting the the okay. the rider truck and everything. So he slipped up. Buying all On this shit. Or not, we don't know. All this other shit, it was always an alias. But the hotel room that puts him there, either he had a moment of weakness and he fucked up, or he intentionally tried to get caught. But at this hotel in Junction City, Kansas, he paid for the hotel under the name Timothy McVeigh. But later on, the very next day, he goes and rents the box truck, the 1993 Ford box truck. He uses his alias and gives him his alias driver's license, which was, by the way, uh, a South Dakota driver's license with the name of Bob Kling. He said he got this because he knew an army soldier named Kling, who he looked like, and also because it reminded him of the Klingons from (laughs) Star Trek. Okay. There's your great creative genius right fucking there. This man had an IQ of 126. I got to get a drink, bro. I I talk more than you do on the show, so I get parched. Okay. Fill time. Uh... (laughs) That's why you're such a great part of this show. So on October, oh, excuse me, October, April, I always feel like I'm going to fall face first on this table when I sit like this. On April 16th, 1995, uh, McVeigh and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City where he parked his getaway car, the same gold, yellowish 1978 Mercury Marquee that we talked about. Right. He parked it blocks and blocks and blocks. From the what he needed to, yeah, obviously, (laughs) right? Uh, we would later find out afterwards that the nearby Regency Hotel uh, lobby security cameras recorded outside images of Terry Nichols' uh, square body GM pickup on the camera driving past. So obviously, it puts Terry Nichols there. Now McVeigh would remove the car's license plate. He left the note covering the VIN number uh, that read, not abandoned, please do not tow, will move by April 23rd, needs battery and cable. They then go back to Kansas for a couple of days. 
on October 17th, October, I keep saying October, on April 17th through the 18th of 1995, they have the Ryder truck with them in Kansas that they've rented. They remove bomb supplies from their storage units and they go out to a state park. They nailed boards onto the floor of the truck to hold the 13 barrels in place. And they mix the chemicals using plastic buckets and a bathroom scale. Each barrel weighed close to 500 pounds. McVeigh would add more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay, which he could ignite, you know, at close range with his Glock 21 pistol in case the primary fuses failed. Unfortunately, that would mean his death as well. Uh, Now, during McVeigh's trial, uh, Michael Fortier's wife, Lori, stated that McVeigh claimed to have arranged the barrels to form a shaped charge. What this this was achieved by tamping, which is placing material against the, the explosives opposite of the target on the explosion. The aluminum side panel of the truck with bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer to direct the blast laterally towards the building. Basically, what I mean is, uh, in layman's terms, McVeigh arranged the barrels in the shape of a backwards J in the truck. He later said that for pure destructive power, he would have put the barrels on the side of the cargo bay closest to the Murrah building, which he didn't because that would unevenly have distributed, you know, 7,000 pounds of weight, could have broken axle, flipped the truck over, caused it to lean one side, which would have drawn attention. So, you know. All right. He then added a double fuse ignition system accessible from the truck's front cab. He drilled two holes in the cab of the truck under the seat. While two holes were drilled into the body of the truck, one green fuse was running through each hole in the cab. These time-delayed fuses led from the cab through plastic fish tank tubing conduit to two sets of non-electric blasting caps, which were denied around 350 pounds of high-grade explosives that he stole from the quarry. The tubing was painted yellow to blend in with the truck's live and uh and then it was duct taped in place to the wall to make it harder to disable by yanking from the outside. It gets better. The fuses were set up to initiate through shock tubes the 350 pounds of the you know Tovix gel sausages which would in turn set off the configuration of barrels. Of the 13 barrels McVeigh had nine contained ammonium nitrate and nitromethane and four contained a mixture of fertilizer and about four gallons of diesel fuel. Additional materials and tools used for the manufacturing of the bomb were left in the truck to be destroyed in the blast. After finishing the bomb, the two men separated. Nichols would return home to Kansas and McVeigh traveled with the truck back to Junction City. This bomb cost them about $5,000 to make. In today's money, you're looking at roughly ten to twelve thousand. So, and he didn't have any money, right? So he got some money. Obviously, he had to have had some money saved yeah. from his deployment <clears throat> yeah. in the Gulf War, and they didn't steal. All they the stole guys. a lot of shit, and some of the stolen shit they had, they, they sold for money, right? But uh, hey, if you ever want to build a bomb and blow some shit up, you know, uh, if you want a destructive bomb like this, you only need about twelve grand. <laughs> yeah, about twelve grand. All right, puss. You ready for meat and taters? Yes. A sad meat and taters? Yeah. Okay. 
Do we need to uh, pay one real fast? Yeah. Or no? Oh, yeah. We'll pay one. Okay. So, guys, check out uh, Main Street Designs LLC in Jasper, Indiana. Uh, small uh, family-owned business that specializes in laser engraving and direct-to-garment printing. They do vinyl decals, baby blankets, and other personalized items for you and your business. Message them on Facebook or give them a call. They do ship all over the country. Give them a call at 812-661-7765. They are uh, good people, friendly people. They've offered to make us a logo. Uh, They're always posting stuff to their social media, and it looks fantastic. So uh, give them guys a call. Okay. Meat and taters. Yeah. So here, here's something else. McVeigh had originally planned to detonate this bomb at 11 a.m. He thought the building would be really packed. But on dawn, the morning of April 19th, 1995, he just decided to do 9 a.m. Why this change has been, uh, it's been talked about a lot. Uh, some people think it's because um, in the Turner Diaries, the white supremacists who blew up the FBI headquarters, they did it at 9.15 one morning. What's funny, if you get in your Google machine and you go look at McVeigh's uh, arrest picture from uh, when he got pulled over by the highway patrol, he was wearing a shirt that said Six Semper Tyrannus with a picture of Lincoln on it. Six Semper Tyrannus means thus always the tyrants. This is what Brutus had said when he killed Caesar, and this is what Books had booth had said when he assassinated lincoln and on the back of the shirt it said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants so okay so he carried with him an envelope full of uh and this was talking about was in the car he had the books in the fucking car and uh, they had uh, he had all the slogans and the bumper stickers and shit with him and all this, you know. Yeah, red flags. Red flags. All this literature. So they they surmise he got into the city about ten till nine that morning at eight fifty seven a.m. There was one final picture of him taken in the truck by the Regency Towers, the same place where they had got caught the other day on the camera at right so it was at that point he lit a five minute fuse three minutes later he's still about a block away he lights the two minute fuse this is his word so he's lighting these motherfuckers and he's still driving (laughs) so this is ballsy yeah like this is ready to die for the cause shit right so he parks the truck in the drop-off zone under the building's daycare center Oh, yeah, look at your face. He didn't. Okay. And again, you know, it's rumored by some that he knew, and others say he didn't. He fucking it was rumored right by him that he didn't know, and then other times he said it didn't matter. He fucking drove right up there. He knew the motherfucker was there. Yes. He, he He's a he's a military. What do you do? You do recon. Yes. He was seeing that building anyway. Surely Reed, right? I'm sure he's yeah. a daycare right there. Yeah. Somewhere. So... What the fuck? And then at nineteen or at nine oh two AM on Wednesday, April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, a rider truck containing 
over 4,800 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, nitromethane, and diesel fuel mixture fucking exploded and took a third of the building away from the Alpha P. Murrah Federal Building. 168 people were killed, over 700 injured, a third of the building destroyed. Eight-foot-deep crater on Northwest 5th Street next to the building. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 buildings. I'm going to tell you right now, the air that this the bomb, air. bomb created would have been tremendous. Oh Well, if you, tr- if you give me a minute, I'll get you right into that. So the blast destroyed 324 buildings within a four-block radius, shattered glass in 258 nearby buildings. Broken glass alone accounted for over 5% of the death total and 69% of the injuries outside the building. The blast destroyed or toasted 86 cars around the site. The destruction of the building left several hundred people homeless, shut down several offices in downtown Oklahoma City, and the explosion was estimated to have caused at least $652 million worth of fucking damage. Yeah, it looks pretty crazy. So, okay, so what you was talking about, uh, that's over 5,000 pounds of TNT. Yeah. They felt it over 55 miles. It could be heard and felt yeah. up to 55 miles away. Shockwave. Shockwave. Guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, and the explosion from it, it would have registered a 3.0 earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about that one place that just blew up across the seas? Or, uh, was, it one, was it Persia? No. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the Ampho. Mm-hmm. They had a bunch of Ampho there and stuff. Uh, that there was... This here would have been about a quarter of the size of that. Yeah. But still. So now, uh, they say the collapse of the building took about seven seconds. Uh, as the truck exploded, it destroyed the first... It first destroyed the column next to it. Uh, and shattered the entire glass facade of the building. The shock wave of the explosion forced the lower floors upward before the fourth and fourth, the fourth and fifth floors collapsed onto the third floor, and it just went from there domino. This is air. Yeah, destructive air. Yes. So now, initially, what happened here when this first started happening was that uh, they were thinking uh, international terrorism because. You know, two years prior in 1993, the Trade Center bombing, right, right. Ryder truck, right. Ramsey Youssef up under the, who's Ramsey Youssef plays another part in this later on, up under the parking garage, World Trade Center, blah blah blah. Well, while all this is going, an hour and a half after, you know, the explosion happened, I-35, Noble County, Oklahoma, McVeigh stop, no license plate. They find the gun on him. They arrest him. He sets in jail. I want to point this out. McVeigh sat in jail for two days. Nobody knew who the fuck he was. It took them over two days before they figured out the fuck up with the McVeigh and everything. Two days. He sat in Oklahoma County Jail. Okay. I wonder what his feelings were right then. I don't know. You think he's laughing on the inside? He's like, I outsmart. I don't know, man, because... He sits there for two days before 
anybody figures out who he is, what's really going on. And you think a guy that would want to get caught and two days has went by, I would be he would have said something. Yeah, somebody, yeah. So I don't I don't know. Um Well he didn't expect to get away with it. Right. So. Um one thing that's interesting here is after booking McVeigh into jail, the trooper searched his uh, patrol car and found a business card which had fallen out of McVeigh's pockets in the back seat of the car. On the back of the card, and this was entered into evidence at the trial, on the back of the card was a Wisconsin military surplus store where the words were read TNT at $5 a stick. They just, you know, it was... So here, here's how they got led to McVeigh. So there was a VIN number on the axle of the truck. Okay. All these trucks have these for safety purposes, like these reasons. So they tracked it to Kansas. So they sent agents up there, and they were asking. Well, they are like, yeah, okay, this truck was rendered to this guy. They used a sketch. They created a sketch. Okay, so then now they have a sketch of what this okay. suspect looked like. You know, this is the guy that rented the truck that was just using this bombing. Whether he's involved with it or not, who the fuck knows? So then they go to the motel because they're like, well, maybe he was staying around here. So she's like, I remember this guy. He stayed here. And then she starts digging through her records, and that's where she finds the name slip was Timothy McVeigh. So now they've got so So now they have a name. To right. go with this sketch. So they do their famous, as high-tech as computers could be in 95, they do an offline search to see if anybody named Timothy McVeigh has been arrested any time in the last year in this country. They see, well, he, here's one just arrested two days ago in northern Oklahoma on the way back to Kansas. Huh. So they call down there like, where's this guy at? Oh, well, he's going before the judge in about an hour, and he's probably going to be released and have to pay a fine, be released, and send on his way. Like, fucking hold him there. Do not let him walk. So the FBI, the ATF, and everybody are coming like hot on heels in North Oklahoma to get this motherfucker. And he doesn't even go before the judge. The judge is like, where's this guy at that's supposed to be here for this uh, weapons charge? Like, well, uh, the FBI is called. They said to hold him. Hold him what? They don't know, sir. It's top secret. So McVeigh's sitting there this whole time in this little bitty cell. And then he gets brought into this questioning room at this fucking hick town, northern, small town, Oklahoma. He gets in there and he sits down. And one guy, one lone guy walks in the room first. He says, you know why we're here, McVeigh? And McVeigh smiled at him and goes, is it about the bombing? So... Okay, so that that was what I want to point out, though, about the the name thing. Right. You know, uh, that's what got him ultimately. Yeah, so they transport him from northern Oklahoma back to Oklahoma City. They obtain a search warrants for his house. They find all sorts of shit, fake aliases, names, addresses. They find out about the Nichols brothers, Terry and James, which again. James was completely innocent. He had no idea. Yeah, they he taught his brother how to make a bomb, but rednecks right. make bombs. Yeah. How was I supposed to know he was going to... So after a month in custody, you can make that bomb. James Nichols gets released. But then it starts coming out that uh, Terry's not so innocent. And uh, 
over the course of a nine-hour interrogation, uh, they decide they're going to hold Terry Nichols as a material witness. And that's when he starts to break down and confess a little bit. Um, they, of course, at the time this is all going on, the United States is still looking towards foreign terrorists. So, sorry, there's some racial profiling going on. It's what the 90s was that happened. Uh, several Arab Americans were criticized and harassed by the government. Da, 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 da. Like, I mean, it, it's bad shit that happens. Well, one thing that I find interesting here is uh, 9.03 a.m., a minute Okay. One minute after the bombing went off, the local uh, fucking 911 center or whatever you'd call it gets flooded with like 2,500 calls within a minute. It almost shuts their system down. Right. So I just thought I'd put that in there. Uh, but within 23 minutes of the bombing going off, so you're at like, you're at 926 in the morning. Uh there's already like emergency operation call centers and evacs being set up and uh a whole bunch of shit uh one thing i found through my research is they were filming twister at this time in oklahoma some of the medical staff that was on set for the movie left the movie to go downtown and help with all this um so within the first hour, they were able to dig out 50 people. They were sent to every hospital in the area. 153 people were treated uh, at one hospital, eight here, 70, so a lot. Um, 10.30 in the morning, they started to evacuate because they found another bomb. Well, because this had been the building, the house, so many of these uh, federal agencies, well, um they thought it was a real bomb it was it was marked live but it was actually a dead bomb it was used in training missions okay so it just gave <laughs> well, them they a, had everybody on edge then gave sure. everybody a spook right right so where we go here because now we're going to kind of start moving around a little bit um uh, the last survivor of the day a 15 year old girl Found her partially par, uh, partially collapsed part of the building was rescued about 7 p.m. That was the last of the survivors pulled out. Uh, there was over 700 rescue workers on scene working. Uh, 24 canine units and out-of-state dogs were brought in to search for survivors and bodies in the debris. To recover additional bodies, 100 to 350 tons of rubble were removed from the site each day over a five-day period. Uh, let's see what else we got in here, puss. Hattie, old girl. Uh, Just the pictures look pretty devastating. Yeah, so you did some research today? A little bit. So um, on May 23rd, a little over a month after the bombing, the federal, the Murrah Federal Building was completely demolished. Oh, by the way, which we'll get to later, McVeigh's attorney had a goddamn conniption fit about that, by the way. Said that there wasn't allowing time for proper evidence to be completed that could have potentially exonerated his client. Like, motherfucker, you are not getting exonerated. Yeah, yeah, like, 
Like, that is not happening. Uh, But they estimate for, you know, days after the building was demolished, they were still hauling away like 800 tons of debris a day. It made a mess. Uh, It it made a big fucking mess. Uh, So, four o'clock that day, President Clinton, and I can remember this, I was eight years old, Clinton... Did a state of the uh, 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 declared a federal emergency in Oklahoma City, and he said, uh, "Quote: The bombing in OKC was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it, and I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards." So he ordered that flags would be flown at half staff for thirty days. And I did not have sexual relations. I wasn't I did not sleep Clinton Clinton I quote I did not sleep with that young intern I was up all night (laughs) yes we're terrible people the show sucks (laughs) so uh they did set up uh they did set up a nice fund called the Murrah fund to help victims and and whatnot uh by uh, 2005, they had like $18 million of the donations were, you know, they had up to $40 million at one point. Can't hardly blame Bill, though. With <laughs> well, ram- with what he was ramrod. living with. Yeah, well, ramrod, dear. What'd you call her? Ramrod. I mean, rod him. I'm sorry. Oh, God. You called her a ramrod? Rod- Rodham. Oh, I'm sorry. That's some funny shit, bro. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, she's a bitch. Uh, an estimated 646 people were inside the Alpha P. Murrah Federal Building when it was exploded. By the end of the day, 14 adults and six children were confirmed dead and over 100 injured. The toll would eventually reach 168 confirmed dead, not including an unmatched left leg that could have belonged to an unidentified 169th victim or could have belonged to any of the eight victims who had been buried without a left leg. Most of the deaths resulted from the collapse of the building rather than the blast itself. Uh, those killed included 163 who were in the Alpha P. Murrah Federal Building, one person in an adjacent building, one woman in the parking lot across the street, two people in the Oklahoma Water Recesses Building, and a rescue worker who was struck on the head by a falling fucking boulder. Oh, no. The victims ranged in age from three months to 73 years and included three pregnant women. Yeah. Um, Of course, uh, I I have the full rundown of the victims here, and that's just a lot to read. Not their names, but like the counts of who worked in what department and what was what. That's a lot of shit to get to. I'm just going to say this. Uh, the victims included 19 children. I mean, you could, everybody can always Google that. Yeah, everybody can always get in the Google machine for that if you want to know. Like, well, I even did that today. I mean, like who wanted to work, who, who, how many was killed that worked in this department or this department because of where McVeigh's focal point was. All I'll put in here is because it's sad and it needs to be included is that 19 of the victims were children, 15 of the children were in the daycare center. So and they and that's a site too. If you if you hop in the Google machine and you look at this shit, um, they set up a temporary fucking morgue right out on the pavement. Right, right. 
and they're carrying out these little bitty bodies and these just small white towels, small white sheets. Of course, you know, the bigger bodies get the bigger sheets. The smaller bodies get the smaller. Right. And it's just small sheet, small sheet, small sheet, small sheet. Like, it's fucking brutal, dude. Just brutal. 24 people. I don't can, get I don't get that part of it, neither. I don't get If I was going to go after somebody. Why children? Why children? That's. Well, here, here we go. We'll, we'll start to get into this now. What I wanted to say, though, is 24 people identified the victims. And I want you to think about how they had to identify these people. It took x-rays, dental exams, oh, fingerprinting, blood tests, DNA tests. Anyways, here we go. So, so like I said, there's going to be a lot of McVeigh quotes in here because I really want to drive home how much of a goddamn fucking sociopath he was, too. So McVeigh would acknowledge the casualties saying, quote, I didn't define the rules of engagement in this conflict in Oklahoma City. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal. It was no holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put it back in the government's faces exactly what they're giving out. I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had hurt. So, you know, in the wake of the bombing, though, a lot of people, and here we go. This is going back to what I was talking about. Like, there there was a lot of flip-flopping as far as the fucking children involved in this were. Uh, the media would focus a lot, and if you go look at, if you get on YouTube and you look at Oklahoma City bombing media coverage, and you'll find a lot of the quips in the days and the weeks after, it focuses a lot more on the fact that of these 168, 19 of them were babies and children. So McVeigh later stated that he was unaware of the daycare center when choosing the target and that if he had known, he might have given him time to switch targets. Then he would say, uh, you know, that's a large amount of collateral damage. Then he would later say that it wouldn't have made a difference. There has to be, quote, there has to be a body count. The only way to get them to take notice, there has to be a body count. Now, it's funny because the FBI stated, you know, one of the, one of the things that the FBI and the prosecutors were doing was said that this guy was a soldier. Soldiers do recon before missions. Uh, McVeigh scouted the interior of this building in December of 94, he scouted it on the outside numerous times leading up. He had to have known of the daycare center in the building before the bombing. You know, and the prosecutor in the trial looked at McVeigh, pointed at him in question. He said, how could he have decided to pass over a prior targeted building because of a flower shop, but not at the Murrah building when he knew there was a daycare center there? So, yeah, I mean, there you go. Uh, of course, one of the, the saddest parts about all this is uh, the picture of the firefighter. It it won like uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize for the news photograph for the news photograph of the year in '96. Is the the firefighter holding the uh, baby that would eventually pass away in his right. arms? Right. So uh, the picture, the media, you know, it's the images. It's uh, it's uh, graphic stuff. It's heart-wrenching stuff. Media-driven. 
media driven. I uh, never know. Yeah. Clinton would uh <laughs> I got handed this fucking Democrat. Uh Clinton did a lot to rally the country during all this. You know, he said that he was so pissed off one night. Quote, I'm so pissed off when this was going on, I wanted to put my fist through the television. I can't ever remember a president saying pissed off before. No, and fist through a... Tele- fist through a television. Television, huh? Okay. Coming from old Slick, Slick Willie Bill. Bill. Slick, Slick Willie Bill. Bill. I, did not have I did not have sex with that young intern. I was up you, you all night. Fucking Clinton, man. Uh, where else? Where, where are we at here? Let's uh, keep rolling. I'm I'm picking and choosing what I'm putting in now, because a lot of this afterwards stuff it didn't really need. It was just filler content. Uh, of course, like I said, there was a lot of uh, bullshit that was unfortunately perpetrated upon uh, Middle Easterners, specifically Arab Americans, and this really stemmed from Ramsey Youssef and uh, his plot with Osama bin Laden in 1993 to blow up the Trade Center buildings. Of course, you know, when the buildings didn't come down, bin Laden said one day these buildings will fall. Then, you know, six years later, they really did. Uh, But, you know, a lot of Arabs got a lot of shit thrown at them that they didn't deserve. Because of this, so much that the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, and that's a thing, Google it, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee had to come out and publicly shun the media for the treatment and the embarrassment and the harassment that Muslims and Arabs were getting after the bombing. And then we have the Boston Marathon bombing, (laughs) which turned out to be... Yeah, right. The Boston more, Marathon bombing. Turned out to be some more Middle Eastern ties. You're, huh. Oh, howdy, old girl. Let's transition towards the trial now. Okay. Holy fuck. So, uh, okay, bomb. Uh, FBI led the official investigation with Special Agent Weldon Kennedy. What a fucking name. Weldon Kennedy was the uh, special agent in charge. He oversaw 900 federal, state, and local law enforcement personnel, 300 FBI agents, 200 Oklahoma City PD officers, 125 members of the National Guard, 55 officers from Oklahoma Department of Public Safety, and the list goes on and on and on. Remember all that 28,000 interviews, 1 billion information, three, four tons of evidence thing I talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, federal judge Richard Paul Motch, Motch, Ma- Dick Motch, Dick Motch, Dick Motch, D Dick Motch, Dick Motch. I don't know if that's how you say it. But that's how we're saying it. Dick Motch. Uh, Dick would order that the trial be moved from Oklahoma City to Denver, Colorado, because of uh, that's the only way the defendants would receive a fair trial. And even though we all knew what the outcome was going to be, right? They did deserve a fair trial. And, Let's be honest. They weren't going to get it in Oklahoma. No. No. So the trial was moved to Denver. Uh, Michael and Lori Fortier, as we talked about, uh, they were considered accomplices for their knowledge in the planning of the bomb. Uh, In addition to Fortier helping McVeigh in scouting, Lori Fortier helped McVeigh laminate fake driver's license that was used to rent the rider truck. 
So Michael Fortier decided to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence and his wife, Lori, being able to grant be granted full immunity and walk free, and she did. She walked her happy little ass right on down the street. Fortier would get 12 years in prison and be fined uh, $75,000, roughly $130,000 in today's money. Which he would not be able to pay because no. he's in prison. Yeah, and they make like 10 cents an hour on the job oh, in prison. Got to pay for them ramen noodles yeah, yeah. and toilet paper. Yeah. Toilet paper is a privilege in prison. Uh, on January 20th of 2006, Michael Fortier was released from federal prison. He was put into Wipro, given a new identity, and to this day, nobody knows who he is or where the fuck he is. They put him in Wipro because they thought somebody was going to beat the shit out of him and harass him. And they don't know where he's at now. Nobody knows where he's at or what he's doing. Now, uh, obviously, everybody wants to hear about McVeigh, but uh, before we get to McVeigh, we're going to go through Nichols because uh, this Nichols trial is really something. So uh, McVeigh was tried and sentenced to death before Nichols was even tried. So I just want to put that out there, but we're going we're gonna to get to this. So Michael Fortier really helped drive home Nichols being a part of this. Uh, he testified that Nichols and McVeigh had expressed anti-government feelings and conspired to blow up the fe- the Murrah building. He said McVeigh did the survey on the building before the attack. He testified that Nichols had robbed this gun dealer to finance the cost of the bombing, which we had right. talked about. Fortier would provide evidence for the cases against both these guys, according to the prosecutor. Uh, Terry Nichols' wife, the Filipino, the 17-year-old Filipino girl, she testified as a defense witness, but her story ended up helping the prosecution's case. She said her husband had been living the double life prior to the bombing, using aliases, renting storage lockers, and lying that he had broke off his relationship with McVeigh. She also testified that Nichols had traveled to Oklahoma City three days before the bombing, uh, supporting the prosecution's uh, contention that Nichols had helped McVeigh station a getaway car uh, she failed to give Nichols an alibi for the day before the bombing, and uh, basically that led the prosecution to believe that Nichols helped McVeigh assemble the bomb. Now, Nichols' defense attorney said that he would, he did help McVeigh um, construct the bomb in the back of the truck and get it ready the day before, uh, but he was under duress. Timothy McVeigh at uh, after trial gave an interview and he his attorney even said during the interview uh mcveigh basically told nichols he they were in the back of the truck i guess as the story goes and mcveigh put a, a mcveigh put a gun to his his fucking head and was like hey uh you're gonna help me do all this now or i'm gonna splatter you all over the inside and you can basically go with the truck when it goes right. off so mcveigh said himself quote that uh, I had help assembling the bomb from somebody who was under duress to me. So that kind of eased the sentence on McVeigh right. on uh, Nichols a little bit, whether that was true or not, or Nichols was just, you know, McVeigh was trying to help his homie get a lighter right. sentence. Who knows? Um, They deliberated for uh, 41 hours over a period of six days, acquitting Nichols on December 24th, 1997, of detonating the bomb. He was not acquitted of all charges. Right. Basically, he didn't set the bomb, 
but they convicted him of conspiring with McVeigh to use a weapon of mass destruction, which is a capital offense. They acquitted him on charges of first-degree premeditated murder, but convicted him on lesser charges of involuntary manslaughter and the deaths of federal law enforcement officials. Uh, now, according to the Washington Post, an article from the trial in 97, quote, there's no evidence that Nichols rented the rider truck used to carry the bomb to OKC, and there was no one who could possibly identify him as the purchaser of the two tons of ammonium nitrate. Most problematic for the government was the compelling fact that Nichols was at home in Kansas when McVeigh detonated the truck. So, um, uh, let's see here. What else we got? Uh, the jury deliberated for 13 hours over two days whether to give Nichols a death sentence, but it deadlocked. District Court George, I can't talk. District Court Judge Dick Motch then had the Dick option Motch. of giving Nichols a life sentence or a lesser term of imprisonment. On January fourth, nineteen ninety-eight, he served Nichols. He sentenced Nichols to life in prison without parole on conspiracy conviction, calling Nichols an enemy of the Constitution who conspired to destroy everything the Constitution protects. Nicholas also received a current 48-year sentence for his eight involuntary manslaughter convictions, six for each victim. He showed no remorse. Um, he was then sent to uh, ADA, ADX Max in Florence, Colorado, which, by the way, if you don't know anything about prisons, and uh, I have done a lot of research on this place. This place fascinates me. It's like the modern-day Alcatraz. If you can sit to ADA Max in Florence, Colorado, you're the worst of the worst. Like some of the people that are there is like uh, the fifth hijacker that didn't make the plane on 9-11, Zachary right. Uh The Unabomber Ted Kaczynski was there until last year when they took him to North Carolina because he's dying of cancer. Ramsey Youssef is there. Uh, the greatest escape artist in U.S. prison history. There's been movies about him. I can't remember his fucking name. Uh, there's YouTube clips about him. He's there. Uh, a lot of got like you're. You don't have to be necessarily a hard ass, but if you're like the worst scum fuck on earth, you don't go to Rikers. You don't go to Folsom. You don't go to San Quentin. You go to ADA uh, Max in Florence, Colorado. That's where he went. McVeigh went there for a while too before they transported him to Terre Haute to fucking put him down like a dog but basically uh the following year 1999 nichols was taken back to oklahoma city to stand charges as the state decided to charge him because they were still pissed off they could not get a death sentence for him uh so he was sentenced to i believe what is it down here he was sentenced to 161 consecutive life sentences wow so even though 168 people died, they couldn't charge him for that because he was already charged, you know, the whole double jeopardy. Right. Even though it was on a federal level, now it's a state level. He's already been charged for these eight deaths. So uh, they charged him for 161 deaths more. And he's so, he like, you know, he's not getting out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole lot of other shit in here about this, uh, about nickels but i mean fuck him so uh but yeah he is uh he's at adx florence so still alive he's still alive unfortunately right 
So, all right. I got a little clip that I would like to play for you guys now. Uh, again, I don't own any of the rights to this audio. This is strictly for education purposes here on the podcast and, uh, you know, just for the show. Maybe one of the benefits of me talking to you today is that you'll see that maybe not everything is true that you've heard about me. For example, what's not true? Well, am I, am I pure evil? Am I the face of terror sitting here in front of you? Or am I able to talk to you man to man? Most people in this country think you are the face of evil, don't they? They do. But sitting down here now, and let me make clear, I'm not sitting here trying to influence you. And I'm not putting on a game face. Uh, I'm not conning anybody. I'm just being me. Best pause ever. <clears throat> yes, it was. That was that was uh, Guinness Book of World Records. That was that was the longest <laughs> pause we've ever taken. So let's uh, let's put this to bed. We got about an hour, hour and a half here, and we'll get her done. Okay, right on. All right, so we're gonna start with uh, I think where I left off of my notes right here. We're gonna talk about Timothy McVeigh's trial. Okay, yeah. Did you know it took that son of a bitch two years to get the trial? Really? Didn't start till April of '97. And uh, they the the prosecution was led by uh, this hotshot um, prosecutor and the FBI, and they were basically saying that uh, you know he had a hatred so bad for the government and da 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 that you know this guy deserves to die and blah blah blah. Well, right. his own sister testified against him. Oh, shit. Uh, the guy that he met in uh, the other guy that he met in the, the military, the Michael Fortier, him, yeah. and, him and his wife testified against him saying that, you know, he built them. He showed them how he was going to build the bond, the bomb by taking soup cans and shit out of the cupboard and drawing it out Ooh. on the table. Damn it. So, um, <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Now this now McVeigh. Look at the ego on this prick. Uh, he had six defense attorneys. He had a, six. He had a team. Yeah, he had six defense attorneys. Wow. And the lead defense attorney wanted them to present a necessity defense to the court, which basically means uh, they could argue that he was in imminent danger from the government, and you know such actions you know, caused him to do what he did. Basically, he had to do this for the greater good. That's the defense they wanted to go to. Timothy okay, McVeigh. Okay, daycare there. <laughs> well, well, get this. This this just proves your point right here. McVeigh's like, uh, fuck no, that's not what we're doing. McVeigh wanted credit for this. Oh, geez. So, so he's like, no, it wasn't a necessity defense. I did this, and I'm I'm cognizant of what happened. I blew this shit up on purpose. It wasn't out of necessity. It was because I wanted to. 
<laughs> so, so okay. he argued with his own defense attorneys about that. So eventually, they they went with what he did. You know, he did this. He was fully aware of what he was doing. Uh, they called a shit ton of witnesses during his trial. They went through thousands of pieces of evidence. Um, <coughs> they uh. A key point in contention during this case was that there was an unmatched left leg found after the bombing. McVeigh's defense attorneys argued that it was the work of a second co-conspirator that was in the building with it, while prosecution was like, this is the leg of, you know, this is the leg of a victim. So they, they ended up digging up a woman that had already been buried they exhumed oh, her no. body and they they matched somehow matched the leg to this woman which is just some crazy shit yeah yeah so but anyways random leg yeah just, mcveigh basically was like look there was no second conspirator it was me and terry nichols and and nichols was under duress to help me as far as the bombing goes there's no john doe number two he said it's just me so the trial went on for uh, about two or three months, and then it came time for deliberation. And again, uh, as Kurt and I say, I put a lot in here about this, but um, if you really want to know more about the trial itself, just go Google it. It's it's so much information that I can't put it all in one episode. Right. So they deliberated for 23 hours, and on June 2nd of 1997... Uh, a little over two years after the bombing, he was found guilty on 11 counts of murder and conspiracy. The defense argued for a reduced sentence of life imprisonment, uh, and the prosecution was like, uh, fuck this guy. So McVeigh <laughs> was sentenced to death. And in May of 2001, the Justice Department had come out that the FBI had mistakenly failed to provide over 3,000 documents to mcveigh's defense counsel the justice department would also announce that the execution will be postponed for one month for allowing the defense to review the documents uh which i think is stupid because there's nothing you're going to find in these documents that's going to you know change anything right right so uh and that that's what's funny because uh a month later the federal judge ruled the documents would not prove mcveigh innocent and uh he said this execution's going yeah yeah and uh let's see um roll on to roll on oh, to they didn't do it that way though did they no he was executed on june 11th 2001 in the wee hours of the morning at the federal correction complex in Terre Haute, indiana lethal injection and his death was broadcast on closed-circuit television so the relatives of the victims could witness the death. In fact, the victims who couldn't make the trip to Terre Haute had specially wired boxes put in their house so they could watch it from their home. You know, is that kind of morbid? I mean, what he did was morbid, too, but I don't don't know. That's kind of crazy. Well, I I put a little something extra in here for you. So you you want to talk about morbid, right? Yeah. Uh, in 2000, a unknown internet company, uh, and I could not track down the name, 
they apparently sued the federal government for the right to broadcast live on television Timothy McVeigh's execution because they thought that what he done was so heinous that the world should get to watch this man die. And the federal courts was like struck that shit down right away. I get my living off the evening news. <laughs> Just give me something. But I mean something I can use. Right. <laughs> but uh, I mean they were gonna broadcast this shit on That's on, just I mean, come on. I mean That's kinda what, what's making me feel like Don Henley there and but you know it's 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 almost like uh, after nine eleven when everybody in the country was like show that footage every day, so we remember what we went through and we kick these bastards ass, you know. Well, yeah, but, uh, but I true. don't know about the execute. I don't know. Uh, uh, now I got some I got some McVeigh news here. Uh, it's gonna be. I mean, lethal injection be pretty boring, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's Watch three that. needles. It's one to. Uh, it's one that. I don't know. It's two or three. It's two or three needles. One that stops your heart. One that collapses your lungs. Some say you die. They say you die peacefully. Which, if you're, I mean, I don't. Are you supposed to die peacefully, or should you suffer when you go? Like, what's the? Well, I mean, there's probably people that suffered at the scene, you know. Right. That did die instantly. So I'd say let him suffer. That's why. Roll on to. Roll on to. I love it. Uh, so I got some. Uh, as as I, you know. We're filming this a little over a week after we did the, I should say, right. we're recording this a little after, a week after we did the first part. So as as I said in the first episode, I've got a few sporadic McVeigh quotes I'm going to be dropping in from time to time. Right. Uh, one of McVeigh's quotes after trial was said, or after trial said, I am sorry these people had to lose their lives, but that's the nature of the beast. It's understood going in what the human toll will be. If there is a hell, then I'll be in good company with a lot of fighter fighter pilots who also had to bomb innocents to win a war. I knew I wanted this to happen. I knew my objective was state-assisted suicide, and when it happens, it's in your face. You just did something you're trying to say should be illegal for medical personnel. So, you know, just, uh, that's, huh. yeah. So the execution did get pushed back, of course, as we had talked about, um, you know, oh, what else? I want TV. Yeah. They wanted to, I, that's, I knew you'd get a kick out of that. That's why I that's put crazy. that in there. I was like, are you serious? And I, I did a little research. I mean, I didn't do too far in depth cause I couldn't find the name of the people that sued the government, but somebody sued the government. For the right to federally broadcast his execution, <laughs> like I, it just blows it, my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, witnesses at trial and also during, um, excuse me, during the execution, said that McVeigh had a blank stare on his face, like. Almost like a look of defiance that if he could get out of here and bomb shit all over again, he'd do it again. He'd do it again. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Um. Let's see what else we got. Not, how about not picking an American? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Right. Kids and stuff. That's so, would you like to know what happened in Timothy McVeigh's body? Uh, well, I mean, just out of curiosity, I mean, what happened to the it, guy, right? It's going to return to dirt. Well... <laughs> 
His body was cremated at a nearby funeral home in Terre Haute. Already did. did. His ashes were given to his lawyer who said, McVeigh's final resting piece will remain privileged forever. So where he is at now, nobody knows. Uh, but but wait, Kurt, wait. It get it gets better. Let me let me cut you off. So where he is at now, nobody knows. But while in prison, while on death row at Terre Haute, they said that he had suggested uh, possibly. Uh, hang on a minute, Kurt. Hang on. I yeah. just lost my place. Okay. Hang on no just worries. a second. Okay, so I guess where I was getting at, and I lost my train of thought there. Uh, while yeah, he was his ashes. Okay, yeah. So his ashes, they don't know where they're at. But All McVeigh right. wrote while he was sitting on death row that he dreamed of his ashes being spread at the memorial. But he thought that would be too cold natured. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am well, dead. Ser- I am dead serious, bro. That's fucking fried. <laughs> I love when you say that. That's what. That's fried. Man. That's fried. But That's you know what's fried. funny? So they did all these psychiatric tests while he was in prison and everything. They said that he's a decent person. He just allowed the rage to build up to the point that he lashed out in one very violent act. They, as- <laughs> yeah, but they 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 think that his IQ was set at like 126, which is pretty high I'm up sure, there. I'm sure he was pretty pretty shrewd. Yeah. Oh, I believe it. Now, um, <clears throat> McVeigh openly shot down the uh, John Doe number two theory. Which we talked about in right. part one, the guy that was with him when he rented the truck. He said, you know, you can't handle the truth. Isn't that what they say in the movie? Because the truth is, I blew up the Murrah building, and it's kind of scary that one man could wreak this kind of hell, isn't it? <laughs> he said, yeah. "He said, quote, for all those diehard conspiracy theorists who will refuse to believe this, I turn the tables and say, Show me where I needed anyone else. Financing, logistics, specialized tech skills, brain power, strategy. Show me where a guy like me needed a mysterious Mr. X. I didn't need anybody. So now confident. Yeah. So now, uh, as we've talked about before, there was always this uh, question between people outside of the issue like people like us every day that watch the news and reporters there was always this issue of did he know that there was a daycare on the second floor or not you know some answers he would give said that he didn't that he knew and he didn't care others say that if he knew about it he wouldn't have done it well uh mcveigh said uh during there there was an auto there was a biography written about him by a guy named dan herbick Herbeck spent like 75 hours over the course of a few years with McVeigh to put this biography together. Uh, McVeigh said, to the people in Oklahoma who have lost a loved one, I'm sorry, but it happens every day. You're not the first person to lose a child, lose a grandparent, lose a parent. 
He said, it happens every day somewhere in the world. I'm not going to go into this courtroom at my trial, curl up into a fetal position and cry my eyes out just because you, the family of the victims, want me to do it. So, like, he's starting to got, you know, a little bit of ego. And yeah, so so here's 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 a key point for you and for anybody that uh, McVeigh did a lot of written interviews or, you know, audio interviews. He did a few, but McVeigh would never appear on television uh, about a year or a little less before he was executed. Timothy McVeigh agreed to do a one televised interview he did it with of all places what was big in the 80s 90s and 2000s but he did 60 minutes and he did with ed bradley and bradley point blank asked mcveigh about the fact that 19 children died in the bombing and he just said i thought it was terrible that children were in the building that's all he said (laughs) so uh yeah now what else we got in here, Puss? Uh, hard telling. Wait, this guy. <laughs> what? I just hope he's good and dead. Uh, yeah, he is. He is. But we got. We don't know where his ashes are at. Can you believe da, da, the ego? Da. Can you believe the ego on that though? He's uh, like, he wrote in like some of his diaries, I guess, or whatever, while he was sitting on death row, that you know he wanted his ashes spread at the memorial, but thought. Man, that might be too cold. I probably ought not to do that. Like you ballsy motherfucker. Yeah. Um. Yeah. What, oh shit. What's interesting here is they they wanted to link McVeigh to you know all these white supremacist groups and da 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 da. There's never no hard evidence that he belonged to anything other than he had a membership with the NRA. But, you know, everybody, anytime a shooting goes off, everybody blames the NRA. Right. Um, what else we got here? Uh, they This required, this brought about a bunch of changes in the law, of course. A bunch of laws were enacted because of this, especially massive quantity sales of fertilizer. Right. Like, this changed some shit. Oh, yeah, uh sure. there there used to be uh there's now law that were enacted after this because the for the tagging of chemicals so like i'm not saying this could ever happen again but because of the laws that were enacted because of this it's going to be awfully hard for something like this to happen again well yeah unless you piss a farmer off <laughs> or i mean unless you're building Who's this a, a- are they being, uh, I guess, the government? Yes. Don't they Which, piss yeah, a lot of people that? off? I mean, that'd be the only people who really have access to that kind of thing for any, any amount, wouldn't it? That's yeah, exactly. And and to for something like this to happen again in 2022, like you'd have to be building this bomb over the course of like 20 years to get that massive amount of stuff because they're. They're all over how much shit you can get. I mean, this was a how many thousands of palm did we say? It's like an eight, nine, ten thousand pound bomb. <laughs> Pretty good size. Bomb. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's gonna be a while. Uh, but did you know that this shit scared the government so bad that in the weeks following the bombing, 
every federal building in all cities around the country had barriers to prevent attacks. There was increased security from nobody come in, nobody drove out. Yeah, yeah, like all across these, like you could go to the Dubois County Courthouse, and I don't know if they'd actually have barriers set up, but I guarantee you, around the building, around the courthouse square in Jasper at that time, there was an increased police presence. Right. Uh, they estimate, you know, uh, that the government spent upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars to improve security in all federal buildings across the country in response to this. Um, what else we got here, puss? Hattie, old girl. Uh, now here's something that, that's, uh, that has led to some conspiracy theories. Well, I shouldn't say conspiracy theories. We'll get to that in a minute. It's led to discussions. Uh, National Geographic Channel. Everybody likes watching Discovery and Nat Geo. All it's right, a thing. Yeah. Right. So right. they had they have a documentary series called Seconds from Disaster, and they hypothesized that the Fer- the Murrah Federal Building probably could have survived the bomb had you built the building similar to what you build buildings in California due to the earthquake quotes. Really? Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that for a second either because that's displacing a bunch of air pretty quick. Can you imagine what that air felt like, too? Oh, there'd be a concussion blast. Good Lord, son. You'd be able to see it. Yeah. The shock shock wave, you know. That's that's exactly right. You could see the shock wave. Which is displacement of a lot of air quickly. Okay, let's see here. Um, and being it was out in the open too, just allowed it to keep traveling. Is it a truck, wasn't it? Yeah. In a van. In the back of a rider truck. Yeah, that's right. Right out front. Twenty-six thousand pound box truck. Full. Full. Man. Now. McVeigh believed that the bomb that went off in Oklahoma City had a positive impact on government policy. He cited the peaceful resolution of the Montana Freeman standoff in 1996, another government overreach thing, the government's $3 million settlement with Randy Weaver following Ruby Ridge, and in April of 2000, statements by Bill Clinton regretting his decision to storm the Branch Davidian compound. McVeigh stated, this is all because of me. I brought about this change. Once you bloody the bully's nose and he knows he's going to get punched again, he's not coming back around. So, <laughs> so you know, it's Man. like we didn't we didn't know a lot about him. Like, he, he you know, but like after this went big, down, he's got some big balls. He's got a lot of ego. Balls, yeah. Balls. Um, let's see here what else we got. So, two years after the bombing, the only memorials to the victims had been, like, crucifixes, letters, and toys, and personal items uh, left at a security fence surrounding the side of the building. They decided to, um, they decided about after a year that they were going to build the the memorial that they have now. So, the, the, the city of Oklahoma, or Oklahoma City, I should say, decided to seek uh designs and they chose a winning design uh out of 625 submissions were set in 
and they built the design and that is the current oklahoma city memorial that we have today and the same one like you know dutch talked about when we were with right. after two beers it cost them roughly 30 million dollars uh i did not i did not add what that is in today's money but uh it was dedicated by president bill clinton on april 19th 2000 five years after the bombing and of course it's uh it's uh it's got a reflecting pool and it's got two large gates uh one with the time 901 and the other with 903 which is you know the the stoppage of time or whatever they call it and then of course the saddest part is uh the field of bronze and stones chairs there's 168 of them for 168 people that were lost yeah the chairs represent empty chairs at the dinner tables in the victims homes and of course the children's chairs are smaller than those of the adult chairs and uh it's heartbreaking when you see it right uh let me see here what else we got so i guess every year on the anniversary of the bombing they hold uh, a ceremony every year of course, the last two years it was canceled due to COVID. Right, right, but uh, they do something every year. Uh, what else? I got something here. I got something here in different color font. So obviously, I really want to hit on it if I put it in different color. Right. Uh, McVeigh claimed no shit. The bombing was revenge for Waco and Ruby Ridge. Uh. You know, it talks about how, you know, he was interviewed by a reporter and then he was selling, as we've mentioned before, he was selling um, paraphernalia, <laughs> anti-government paraphernalia. Uh, he was reading people the Turner Diaries, which we've talked about. Um, let's see what else. Oh, here we go. In a 1,200-word essay from March 1998 from... Uh, ADX Florence, which is the the worst of the worst, where McVeigh was before he went to Terre Haute, he claimed that the terrorist bombing was morally equivalent to the U.S. military actions in Iraq and other foreign countries. Uh, he submitted these essays to anybody that would give him a chance. Uh, and I got I got some uh, a couple of quotes here. Uh, the truth is the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has set the standard when it comes to stockpiling and use of weapons of mass destruction but it's hypocrisy when it comes to the death of the children in oklahoma city it was family convenience that explained the presence of a daycare center placed between the street level and the law enforcement agencies on the upper floors of the building uh he said <laughs> the administration has admitted to knowledge of the presence of children in or near Iraqi government buildings, yet they proceed with their plans to bomb the fuck out of them. So basically, he's saying he don't care. Uh, and then um, uh, two months before he died, and I highly encourage you people to read this. Uh, in April two thousand one, McVeigh wrote a letter to Fox News, and he basically, because you know when you get on death row and you got about a month left to go, that's when some of these guys start talking. I don't know if they're trying to buy themselves time or what. 
But McVeigh had basically said that um, he said, I chose to bomb the building because such an action served more purpose than other options. The bombing was a retaliatory strike, a counterattack for the raids and violence and damage that federal agents had participated in over the preceding years. Uh, and I encourage you guys to read it all. There, there's, there's a lot of quotes in there that really paints this guy in a horrible, twisted light. Uh, now, I saved something as we're, as we're starting near the end here. I saved something for you. Okay. Conspiracy theories, because every, every you like conspiracy theories. Well, some of them have a good ring to them. I don't know. I don't know. We had some good conspiracy theories with Hoffa. Yeah, for sure. Do you do you want to see a couple of uh, Oklahoma City conspiracy theories? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, um, excuse me. Some theories allege that Bill Clinton was involved with this. Can you believe that? <laughs> the president okay. the pre- I did not have sexual relations yeah what was that jo- I did not sleep with that young intern I was I up have sexual, I did not have sexual relations with that woman I was <laughs> up all night <laughs> but they claim that he had knowledge of this and he's just like yeah fuck it it's the midwest nobody cares <laughs> or yeah so uh, several witnesses report seeing a second person with McVeigh around the timing of the blast. This is what they call John Doe 2. Now, in, fe- in uh, late 1997, the FBI arrested a man named Michael Brescia, who was a member of the Aryan Republican Army, which is a white supremacist group. He uh, resembled the drawing of the John Doe 2 that had been with uh, McVeigh when he rented the rider truck. Uh, they later released him. Well, then they pick up another guy who is a German guy uh, named yeah. Andreas Strassemeyer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> this guy uh, was like high connected up with like, uh, you know, supremacist groups and uh bombing and robbing and killing stuff and this guy fit the description but they could never get anything on him now that brings a question because a lot of people think that mcveigh and nichols had co-conspirators who were international you know like uh and this was based on the fact that terry nichols was traveling you know, to the Philippines when Ramzi Youssef bombed the World Trade Center in 93, uh, which, by the way, was used with a rider truck van, you know. Right. Um, Nichols, in 2006, would declare, there were others who existed, Timothy McVeigh, but their identities were never disclosed to me, which some people basically left as uh nichols was just you know blowing smoke because mcveigh was already dead at this point but uh there's you know the speculation of course that the unmatched leg that was found in the building which they later found to match the woman whose body they dug up which again i'm, I'm just baffled how you can match a leg yeah, no like it's uh, <laughs> uh and then here here's the big one that i put in there for you because we me and you've talked about this on uh 
off air when we've talked about 9-11 before. Uh, and that would be many people report hearing explosives glow off almost like a controlled demolition. <laughs> That's what they always said about 9-11, too. So, I don't know what you think about that. You don't think this could be an inside job, do you? Uh, oh god. <laughs> I want I don't want it to be, you know. No, I don't want it to be either. Uh but again, this this there's more to this theory about Clinton knowing about the bombing in advance and that's just a crock of shit. That Clinton didn't know shit. Right. Uh I'm looking puss. We're we're grasping at straws here towards the end. I gotta hurry. I gotta hurry and get you off the phone. You got things to do today. Yes, I do have things to do. <laughs> Not watch Steeler football. Yeah. Um Oh, this is the last thing. Yeah, puss. This is one of the last things. Uh I don't dig much into conspiracy theories, but there's something here I got to read to you. Okay. Okay. So on September 28th, 2009, so we're 14 years after the bombing, okay? Okay. There's a guy named Jesse Trinidu. He is a lawyer in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. He released security tapes that he had obtained from the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act. That show the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building before and after the blast from four security cameras. You follow me so far? Yes. The tapes are completely blank at the points right before 9.02 a.m., which was when the blast happened. Trinidad said that the government's explanation for the missing footage is that the tapes were being replaced at the time. Trinidad would say, quote, Four cameras in four different locations going blank at the same time on the morning of this bomb. There is no such coincidence. Trinidad became interested in the case because his brother, Kenneth, had died in federal custody during an interrogation because he was being mistaken for a possible co-conspirator in the bombing. In the civil suit, the courts detained that his injuries could, not, could have been self-inflicted and rejected the family claim that he was murdered. However, the family would get $1.1 million for emotional distress uh, about this. So, the, and there's more to this theory, too, if you guys look into it about how the security tapes just go missing. Everybody's always likes a good conspiracy story. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's a conspiracy with this here, but everybody likes a good. So. I uh, don't. Uh, something else we talked about, you know, you asked me in the very first episode, the blast was so powerful that it damaged 300 buildings within a 16 block radius. Yeah. Uh, there was a crater left that was like 30 feet in width and like oh, eight feet deep. And, of course, uh, 100 cars within the immediate vicinity were disintegrated beyond recognition uh let's see uh, a couple other conspiracy theories 
which I'm not really going to get into all those. It's just, it was that uh, McVeigh was uh, mind controlled by the by the federal government. That's a <laughs> the government, <laughs> the government, um, mind controlled him to do this and uh you remember the do you remember uh oh god we've seen them in comedy shows before how somebody's a foreign spy and they don't realize they're a spy till somebody says a trigger word and then their eyes open and they become possessed right yeah so that they're they're saying that happened to mcveigh which is a crock of shit right uh so so here we go, puss. So we're gonna go ahead and tie a bow on this, get it wrapped up. There wasn't very much to get to. There wasn't as much in here as I thought. And again, and again, you know, I did cut some of this off for time constraints, guys. If you want to know more, there is a plethora of um, there's a plethora of McVeigh tapes out there, and letters and and quotes, and it's all some real hokey shit. Like, this guy was ballsy, but he was also, I think, a sociopath. Uh, and the conspiracy theories go deeper and deeper how McVeigh wasn't in control of himself and that he was controlled by the government and a whole bunch of other shit. Uh, Puss, I got a little word association for you if you want to. Yes. You do? Yeah. Okay, so uh, choosing a federal building for the attack Uh, first, th- first thing comes to mind. First thing, uh, ballsy. Ballsy. Yeah. Is there is there a conspiracy attached to this? I don't think so. Was Terry Nichols more involved than what he claims he was? I mean, he still got life in prison without parole. Did he know more he than he claims? Yes, I think he did. Ten thousand dollars in today's money to build a bomb. Wow. <laughs> you really got to be pissed to... Uh... Yeah, that was good. Okay. Did Timothy McVeigh want to get caught because he had all of his bases covered until he left his accident... He left his last name at the hotel. Did he do it on purpose or was it an accident? Uh, on purpose. He, he didn't care. I, I think that's exactly why. I think he wanted the attention. Yes. To, is there a John Doe number two? No. Okay. Uh, the choice to do the bombing on the Waco anniversary. Uh, no, Ed. Not coincidence. Noteworthy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, three more. The nineteen ninety five Oklahoma City bombing. Devastation. Devastation. Yeah. Timothy McVeigh. Oh, what a piece of work. Ask me, I went in on this one. Okay. That ask me, Timothy McVeigh. Okay, sociopath. Definitely. Okay. Uh, grading our three-part series on Ruby Ridge, Waco, and Oklahoma City. How'd we do? A minus. All right, my brother. I'm gonna say A even. Oh man, I love you for that. So and and again, I want to say though, uh, thanks to thanks to Kurt for taking time out of football Sunday and family Sunday for forty five minutes, huh? Yeah, well, I appreciate it. We uh, had to tie this up, and uh, all right, man. Well, I will uh, let you know when it's posted. 
it's been fun uh, the three part series. It, it has, you know, and and uh, full of uh, interesting facts. So. It has. It's been awesome. I've enjoyed it, and I think you've enjoyed it. And there's some crazy motherfuckers out there. <laughs> a bomb from fertilizer. Yeah, who would have thought? And they put it in the back of a 26,000-pound box truck or whatever it was, a rider truck rental. They arranged the barrels all in the shape of like a, a J and an L or whatever inside the... Yeah, he knew there was a daycare right. there. You ain't going to yeah. lie to me. He knew. That, that kind of it's the final straw breaks the camel back for me on it. well I mean you're a soldier what's the first thing every soldier does is recon, recon. Yep. so you know he was at that building at least three or four times probably in the building I'd be willing to bet I don't know if we touched on that in the first episode or not but he was probably in the building You had, he knew there was a daycare there you ain't gonna lie to me right so I agree all right, Puss. Well, I'll let you get out of here, man. For uh, Kirk Kelly, I'm Jared Atkins. And uh, Puss, I'll holler at you later. All right, brother. Have a good day. See you, bro. All right. All right, guys. So that wraps up our three-part series on uh, government overreach and related things. Uh, Ruby Ridge 92, Waco 93, OKC 95. Uh I did cut a couple things out of this for time constraints here, but uh, obviously what I cut out is not going to be much of what you're missing. Uh, it's just a lot of post-trial, post-conviction, and uh, post-execution stuff. There is a lot of depth to this. Uh, I shouldn't say depth. There's a lot of stories and other avenues to this whole thing about OKC being uh, a you know, conspiracy theory and everybody loves good conspiracy stories. So uh, hop in your Google machine and check that out. I do highly recommend if you can find, you can find clips of it on YouTube. You might even be able to find the whole interview. McVeigh's interview with 60 minutes in 2000. Cause again, McVeigh didn't, you know, he would do, you know, in-person interviews and, and, and talk a little bit for the biographers, people writing books, but McVeigh didn't do television interviews. So when he sat down in 2000 with Ed Bradley, that made news because McVeigh didn't give interviews. I mean, I remember watching this shit as a 13-year-old, like when it when it aired. So I, I highly recommend you check that out. This uh, was a tragedy, but uh, ultimately it's a good story. It was all they were all three interlinked together. So uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this part two. Uh, so. Yeah, now it's uh it's on looking towards twenty twenty three and what we uh what we have for the show there. So for Kirk Kelly, I'm Jared Atkins. Uh, thank you guys a lot, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.